Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with Adam Chemaluski himself. Chema, how are you doing today, my man? Dude, doing really fucking good. Just took a nice stroll down memory, memory lane with you and everything, and uh, I gotta say I'm ready to record because we just had a weird conversation about somebody we went to high school with, and I'm now ready to engage in a discussion and split the discussion fire within me. Absolutely, absolutely. So I... I want to start off before we hop into this particular episode. I want to start off with a bit of house cleaning and scolding for both of us from last episode. Um, okay. When we, when we covered foreign, we covered world music. Um, mm-hmm. We both deserve a, a like a huge slap to the face when we got into our discussion about who would represent Canada in like a Eurovision style song contest. Yes. Um, how did neither of us even think? about mentioning Neil Young or Leonard Cohen? Whew, okay, I am. I could definitely answer the Neil Young question. Um, I don't when I, I think voice and representation of Canada in a musical competition, Neil Young is not necessarily the person that I think of just because his voice isn't necessarily like what I show up for when I'm listening to a Neil Young album. It's more of just like the collective thing, like the music and stuff. Leonard Cohen, I have no idea. Like, no fucking clue. That totally slipped my mind. I've seen so many young photos of him. He looks like Adam Sandler. I just thought he was from New York. Well, okay. So to circle back to Neil Young, I don't care about any of that. How did we not mention him? Yeah, that is all. Like, I don't care about the musical composition. Neil Young is the most famous Canadian musician of all time. And we didn't mention him. I used to, like, it's, every time I hear the music, like, I just, for some reason, like, I just think that he's American. Like, I don't know why. The guy's been around for so long, and I just, like, he's written so many fucking hits and everything. I'm just, it just, I go right to him being from America. Well, that says a lot about you, Chema. Um, yeah. <laughs> there is a border there, and it is a different country. But, um, and he even gets name-checked by a very American band, telling him that, uh, hope Neil Young will remember Southern man don't need him around anyhow. Um, in case oh, you, yeah. in case you, in case you forgot, Gemma. But yeah, um, no, like I, Leonard Skinner is it's that is something that exists in like three songs in two seconds of a solo for me. It's uh, I just kind of like moved beyond Skinner. I haven't heard of Sweet Home Alabama in years. <laughs> oh, um, so there you go. I, I guess you deserve two slaps to the face, but I get one. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't, I really don't know how that slipped either of our minds. That's bizarre. Um, but anyway, we are continuing on with our Beyond Borders month as we tackle some movies, as we ta- take a look at scenes from the world, or scenes of the world. Uh, Chema, do you remember the first truly foreign movie you watched? It doesn't have to be foreign language, but certainly like a foreign movie. Oh, 100%, dude. This was Godzilla versus Biollante. This was like the first Godzilla movie that I actually watched that was all in Japanese and everything. It was just a video rented from Summit Video with the subtitles. And I had seen two Godzilla movies prior to that, but I saw the American versions of them that had Raymond Burr kind of sliced in with the the Japanese footage and stuff. So the, and I just, I don't count them because they are like in English and stuff, but um, the Godzilla versus Biollante was by far and away the first subtitled, not a word of English in the movie. Gotcha, gotcha. What year is that from? That would have been 1986, 1987, because it came out, it's in the Heisey era of Godzilla movies. Uh, that's what I was wondering, yeah. 
Yeah, so um, Godzilla 1985 was the first one, which is just Godzilla in Japan, and then Godzilla vs. Biollante was the second one in the Heisei, uh, in the Heisei series. Gotcha. Which I am looking up right now just to confirm the date, and it is 1989. Sorry about that. I think, 1989. Yeah, I was just more curious about the era because you know, like I, I like I have a like I have a very soft spot in my heart for that era of the Godzilla movies. Oh yeah, um, we're, those are the best ones. Yeah, yeah, where they where it really is like the precursor, where it really is the precursor for American studios to go. Well, we could obviously, I mean, obviously they did it with Raymond Burr previously, but like, well, we could just take all those Japanese TV shows and then just put American actors into all the talking scenes, right? <laughs> and then and then you get Power Rangers and VR Troopers and et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, that one that one's got a, sp- a special place in in my heart too and stuff like those were like the Godzilla movies that I first saw and I didn't like the show era stuff just kind of came a little bit I mean a little bit later like maybe two or three years later in my life but the heisty ones are are a little bit better done mm-hmm. um the, the effects have come a long way since like the, the 50s and 60s into the 70s when the show era was and everything so like that is just like th- those like if they never made any of the new Godzilla movies or Godzilla 90 those ones could like live in my mind like rent free the godzilla 98 just needs to figure out a way to disappear from pop culture altogether there's and it's it's not even like it's that it's not even it's that bad per se it just it is so like when you think about what makes a godzilla movie that is like so far removed from what Mm -hmm. a godzilla movie is i mean it's a giant monster it's a kaiju movie whatever fine but it's not godzilla no, that's it's like Jurassic Park that just happens to take place in New York City and have younger versions of one monster instead of a bunch of different kinds of dinosaurs and stuff. That that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And like it's you know, we've been talking for a while now about like younger generations kind of like reappropriating material. Like Dune was the example that we used about like this person writing like, Oh, Dune eighties in the eighties is a good movie. Mm-hmm. There are people out there that are starting to reappropriate and re review Godzilla ninety eight as if it's not that bad and I'm just like, you should be kicked off the internet forever. It is, it is bad for a multitude. I know we've talked about this before. Like the just sort of stating a movie is bad. Like for me, isn't enough. Like, why is mm-hmm. it bad? Like give, give me right. more about why it's bad. And Godzilla, Godzilla 98 is bad for the biggest reason we just went through. It is not a Godzilla. It doesn't align with Godzilla canon. It doesn't align with the spirit of Godzilla movies at all. Right. Um, and then Matthew Broderick is your, pro, is your super, is your protagonist. He's your hero. The right. whiniest, <laughs> nivelliest hero of all time who really doesn't do a whole lot of anything. Um, the, the lead, the lead lady who I think this was like her only movie. Um, and it shows that this is like her only movie. Um, mm-hmm. she is a, it's, it's a rough performance right. from her and, or maybe this is like one of like two movies she ever did. Um, it's a rough performance and it's one of those, it's one of those spots where like you need someone with talent and skill to sort of, you know, to be the number two person in this fucking $200 million movie you made. Um, yeah. And then all the weird shit, like Siskel and Ebert are the fucking mayors, the co- the co-mayors of New York, um, because uh, Roland Emmerich wants to, like, teach them a lesson or something. Very fucking bizarre. Yeah. Oh, you totally are hitting all of that on the head, especially that performance. I, I swear to God, I never saw her ever again. Never. I, I, I think this is it. I think Godzilla 98 is it. Yeah, and r- rightfully so. Yeah. 
Oops, sorry, I actually muted myself when I went to go talk. It, yeah, just a just a terrible, just a terrible. It, it, it's I, I can't. It's hard to compare another sort of movie in a series to it that is that that misses the mark by that much. Right. Oh, you are a hundred percent fucking right on that one, man. Yeah. But that is another deep dive for a whole other day. Yes, it man, is. I could go on a fucking tangent about that that I'm trying to prevent myself from doing. So, what about you? What was your um, first truly foreign movie that you watched? Now, it's it is in English, but I'm gonna go ahead and put an asterisk besides it because it's Australian English from the 1980s. It's Mad Max 2. Um, good luck understanding half the characters, um, even though they're speaking English, but. It is one of those movies that, like, it is, it's once you, you finally, like, I, I can't remember, I think 2 comes out in 1982, and I think I saw it when I was, like, I think I really remember seeing it when I was, like, 7 or 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, like, the first time. It, it might have been, like, an early, like, a one of those, like, big gets that HBO had, or, like, or not big gets, but, like, one of the, one of the, um, one of those titles they held on to forever. Because um, yeah. I, I feel like I remember seeing it on HBO. Um and just sort of like this idea that not only, not only does again we kind of talked about how like when you when you first realize that other countries have like other countries do music too and it's like wait what I have to investigate I have to find out more it's <laughs> it, this is also sort of it's that same thing but it's also like not only does Australia do movies they've been doing bizarro fucking movies for decades and right. there is a treasure trove of weird shit. That has been happening, the exploitation films, all kinds of shit that you just don't even know about that's been happening in Australia since like the 1940s. Um, and like Mad Max 2 is sort of like the, for me, it was like that first, like the tip of the iceberg before I ended up watching some other like bizarro Australian movies. Like stuff like shit with like young Nicole Kidman and shit in it. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, I gotta say that that movie, um, yes, it definitely is HBO because they still have that movie um, available to watch. It's in my queue. And you're right. That movie is uh, really, really weird. And I will guarantee you that a lot of people um, that was their introduction, either that or the, the first the first one, mm-hmm. um, like that would have been a lot of people's introduction to that like pretty much Australian movies of any kind or anything like in that section of the world. I highly doubt people were like, you know, rushing to the theater to see once we were warriors, but mm-hmm. like Mad Max is like major appeal. It still fucking does. Oh, Oh, for sure. And, um, and I think, I think a big part of it too, it was, it wasn't, it's Mad Max, like the, the road warrior or, or whatever. It's, it has like a different title. So yeah, it, it right. so like here we don't, you know, like whatever it, it it sort of it sort of has like a new shine here um, mm-hmm. that it that it didn't obviously was already already well known in Australia at that point, but it had a new shine here. Um, so like it definitely was like a lot of you know that Mill Gibson in general is probably a lot of people's first um, look at what was going on in Australia at that point in time in the seventies and eighties. Um, but uh, sorry, just I was looking this up real quick. If you haven't seen BMX Bandits with Nicole Kidman when she's like, I don't know, twenty. 20 mm-hmm. hold on, let me look it up real quick she would have been no oh, 20 she would have been 16 um oh, wow. if you bmx bandits from 1983 it is just look if you just want to like look up the the posters for this movie dude it's fucking wild wild yeah. movie. i can only imagine what um this movie is about i'm googling the uh posters right now and stuff and i keep on forgetting that at one point in time oh jesus fucking christ look at this thing <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep on forgetting that at one point in time, like Nicole Kidman was like a teenager and younger and stuff. Cause a majority of our lives, you know, like I would say 
like Batman Returns would have been the first time I ever really saw her in anything. And like Nicole Kidman has just been like an adult, like, you know, to me my entire life. It's just like that is Nicole Kidman is in yeah. her 20s and 30s. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Same, I had the same um, actually doing research for this. I had the same realization with uh, Tony Collette. I was like, you know, when I was when I was going through she's Australian as well. Um, mm-hmm. As I was going through like her filmography, I'm like, she's only 50. It it feels like she's been in movies for like 35 years, and she oh, has yeah. been. Like she right. actually has been. It just, I guess, like my, you know, like my awareness is like when like she's like late 20s, early 30s is like where mm-hmm. my awareness for her starts. And but she has literally been in movies since she was a teenager too. It's just like it's just it feels strange. Like she's simultaneously older and younger than she actually right. is. No, I I get you, dude. I go I go through the same thing with Affleck, who just turned fifty last week. I That's like, right. Affleck, yeah. he's fifty years old. Like it just seems like it seems like he should be older, but yet he looks better than I do <laughs> as a thirty five year old man. <laughs> oh right, my god. Exactly. Uh, anyway, can you remember your first favorite foreign film? Okay, so I'm kicking it in, keeping it in the kaiju family here. The original Godzilla would have been like my first like like favorite one and stuff, which I actually just watched recently, and um, that movie is fucking good. And I, as an adult, I'm a lot um, more aware of like the atomic bomb and um, the fear of the atomic bomb and everything like that. You know, the societal fear that kind of drove that movie and everything. And the um, thing that I had forgot was there was this character in the movie. I think it's actually his name is like Dr. Heisey. And he's this guy who invents this machine to kill Godzilla. And there's this whole thing about like, he's got, he's like Oppenheimer. Like he's a personification mm-hmm. of Oppenheimer. I mean, it basically like everything about him with the exception of the line, um, the, the famous line, which they give Dr. Heisey a modified version of. And like, I actually was quite moved by the symbolism in there. And they give the doctor um, a lot of really great monologues and stuff like that throughout the movie, just things that I had completely just like went over my head, like, you know, throughout a, a lot of my life and stuff, just the less memorable parts of the movie. But I got to say that original one from 54 is a fucking classic. There is so there's such a difference between that one and the next one, which is like Godzilla raids again, which is just like clearly somebody was just like, OK, we can make money off this. Let's mm-hmm. try. But they skipped out on everything else. And um, the, that first one, it, you know, it, when it's in the Criterion Collection, like that is one that I'm like, yeah, that deserves to be in the Criterion Collection. Absolutely, it's it is the the stark the stark difference between Godzilla and Godzilla Two. Um, mm-hmm. It's Rambo to Rambo Two. It's right. <laughs> totally fucking different movies altogether. Rambo uh, or First Blood, um, mm-hmm. a, a a study of a study of uh, military veterans being unwelcomed in a town and like their PTSD causing it, making it even more difficult. And their, mm-hmm. you know, the re um, integration into American society post Vietnam. Uh, First blood part two, fucking go back to Vietnam and blow them all up. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right, dude. Yeah. It's amazing how um, some of the substance is gone once they find out that they can make money off of it. Yep. A- absolutely. Uh, but speaking of, speaking of making money off of things, one of my, one of my first favorite films that really is in the, uh, my first one, the first one I can really remember, I, I'm sure they're, I'm sure I'm forgetting one, but one of the first ones that I can remember that really kicked off my love for the, uh, for the Hong Kong actioners, 
uh, directed by maybe the greatest Hong Kong action director of all time, John Woo. Um, it's 1992's Hard Boiled. And uh, with uh, with young Chow Yun Fat, um, a, a part that was originally there's a there's a part that was originally supposed to go to Michelle Yeoh. I can't remember why she wasn't in that movie, but this is sort of um, this is like right before John Woo, Chow Yun Fat, and some of these other people kind of let, you know their movies kind of land in America, like right before Jackie Chan lands in America with Rumble in the Bronx. Um, mm-hmm. But Hard Boiled is sort of like the it is like the it, it, it's the it's the the previous ten years of these Hong Kong action movies, and they John Woo is just like all right, but what if what if I turned it up to fucking fifteen from right. from ten? The mm-hmm. there's a, like a three minute trailer for it. It's again, it's all in Chinese, so like it, like the trailer doesn't even have any language, doesn't have any speech in it really. Um, it's just three minutes of people getting shot, blown up, swinging off of shit, kicking each. I mean, it is fucking insane. How many people get shot? How many squibs are blown off in this fucking movie? And like how how cool and it, it's amazing that you know he had um, Chow Yun Fat obviously had like a little had a little run in the late nineties and early two thousands with some movies, but like we missed out on the best of Chow Yun Fat from like the late eighties and the early nineties when he was uh, late twenties, early thirties ish roughly because uh, mm-hmm. he looks every bit of. When you think of like a John Woo action movie, he looks every bit the fucking action hero. Just kicking the shit out of people, killing killing organized crime members. It, it, he's awesome. This movie is fucking insane. Highly recommend you watch Hard Boiled. Yeah, I got to tell you, dude, I, I have not seen that one. But I do um, remember a lot of what you just said about how we didn't get the best Cha Young Fat. And I remember that being kind of like a thing even in the, the late 90s and early 2000s mm-hmm. and stuff where it's like, you know, he was in, he was in the 40s, some of then. the... Wow, Jesus fucking Christ! He's, yeah, he's in late sixties like, now. God damn! I'm telling, like, once again, here we are. Just one of these things. The same thing with Affleck and all that stuff. But, yeah. Like, it's um, I remembered like you know, just seeing his name around that time period and everything. And some of these movies that he was in seemed like really like Americanized like action movies. And like a, a critique at the time was that like we really like just we weren't getting like the best child young bad. I mean, I think we were all kind of wrapped up in like Jet Li and some like other kind of martial mm-hmm. arts to stars around that time too. And um, I think Jet, Jet Li would have been like infinitely younger. So that's probably like you right. know, why we were so wrapped up with him and why we did not get the, you know, the best child yeah. young bad. I mean, we still got Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which was, I mean, it's fucking incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But at that point in time, Chow Young Fat was like 45 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, right. yeah. really, really kind of, you know, not saying like he's beyond his like action prime, but there's a reason why, especially at that point in time before, you know, before everyone was on steroids. Um, I shouldn't say before because Stallone was definitely on, Stallone and Schwarzenegger were definitely on steroids. But like it, it just it was a it was just a different game back then. Like mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't have the um, the way that we have like the Liam Neeson mature action star the Tom Cruise mature action star we didn't have that twenty years ago right so he just kind of missed out yeah no that's that's definitely right yeah every all of our action stars were still like on the younger side and then you know probably like Liam Neeson and Taken might have been like the thing that kicked off like the older mm-hmm. action stars and then I mean then we had the Expendables all that stuff for sure right exactly um, so. Where where have you noticed foreign films' biggest impact within Hollywood? Okay, so within Hollywood itself, like these foreign films, I feel 
have their biggest impact, number one, when there's when there's crossover appeal, when there's something that like American audiences can kind of latch on to. And like I, I feel that like Squid Game, for example, being like, you know, the most popular kind of newer example, mm. Squid Game has like crossover appeal. So like though it's something that I feel a lot of people can, you know, kind of relate to the idea of playing children's games while they may not be the exact games that were played in the movie. It's a, a very simple story of just like, hey, it's a guy trying to get money in this really, really crazy and sort of creative way. So it does have a big impact in Hollywood when there's crossover appeal. And then the other um, impact that I noticed with foreign films in Hollywood in particular is they have a really big impact when Hollywood can refurbish them for American movies. So yes. like the ring, and <laughs> yes. the, the, depart, the departed and everything mm-hmm. like that. So um, I, I try to approach this question like strictly from like a Hollywood as like an industry type mm-hmm. t- type answer. And those were the two things that I've landed on crossover I, appeal yeah. and re- refurbishing repurposing. You are a hundred percent correctly. I, I had some similar thoughts as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll just back you up on that. Like, absolutely. Like these are, these are once we you know we get the horror boom of the early two thousands you know all the Japanese and Korean horror movies that we poured over, um, you know Ringu um, the I can't remember what the Juan uh, the Grudge, um, you know once we once executives see like oh shit like this is a huge hit in Japan we have to make it oh shit this is a huge hit in Korea we have to make it absolutely they're huge fucking cash cows, um, mm-hmm. so you hundred percent correct on that. Um, and and since you mentioned crossover, I, I was kind of thinking about it this way too. There's also this: we're now seeing these um, these movies that would otherwise have only been they would have only been in terms of like when you're when we're getting um, getting to award season, um, right? Movies that are would have only been in foreign language categories are now up for best picture, up for right. best you know best actor, whatever best best director, best you know adapted screenplay, original screenplay. That never would have happened 10, 15 years ago or would have happened in, in much smaller, you know, it would have been one movie is up for Best right. Picture from France or Italy or whatever. And now continuously we're seeing movies from Korea, from Japan, from, you know, from Mexico that are being nominated for Best Picture with regularity. Just stuff that didn't happen quite that often previously and 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 also like, you know, and, and in just in different categories too. Like it, it is, there is like a spillover effect. It's not just best picture. Like I said, it's best director. It's best mm-hmm. screenplay. It's fucking costuming and shit in some of these in some of these movies. Um, so there's like this big trickle down effect when it comes to award season that they're more present. We're not really thinking about them just solely as foreign movies anymore. You know, uh, Parasite isn't just a foreign movie anymore. It is in fact the you know one of the most important movies. Period. Made in years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, Drive My Car is a very important movie. Period. You know, let alone you know, let alone a Korean movie. So, it, it's those kind of that sort of like expansion within when you think about the the awards kind of stuff is like a really really big and important impact. Oh, definitely, dude. And we could kind of go back to our conversation from last week about like algorithms and stuff. And like I, I know, believe me, like once again to quote Squid Game. But if you watch Squid Game, the algorithm might you know feed you more. Korean style horror movies. And I, oh, I know Squid sure. Game came out after Parasite and everything like that, but like the algorithm was still in effect in 2019. So, um, you know, these people that are watching something, maybe get fed something else, maybe, maybe not just specifically with Asia, but with other countries in, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Europe and in South America, whatever. And they become more open to it, you know, and because audiences become more open to it, that's when the opportunity for uh, like foreign films and everything to really like 
kind of step in and in the case of Parasite, take home the best picture of the year. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Best picture and best director. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> he, Bong Joon-ho did, uh, did the daily double there. Um, but, um, or Bong Joon-ho. Um, I always, I always fucking transpose that. Um, but, um, you know, like, and, and since you mentioned it, like, you know, since you mentioned the algorithms too, um, we are, and this is, I guess this is sort of, I had like a little follow up there about like society and I'll just like, I'll just get a quick follow up there. You know, you're interested in Squid Game, so maybe uh, a show like a show that I really enjoyed that was really good, uh, Kingdom. About and I, I watched. I ended up watching it because of the parallels to what was actually happening. Um, mm-hmm. I started at the beginning of the pandemic, and um, it's pretty quick. Like each, it, like a lot of foreign TV shows, it's um, you know six, seven episodes per season or whatever. Um, right, and they're a little bit closer towards feature length. They're all about like an hour long, um, but. It like it really like it actually had a lot of parallels to the way, to the way um, certain political factions in the United States were ignoring the pandemic or trying to ignore the pandemic. Um, but it, but it, that you know that was like a recommendation. You know that led to other foreign recommendations because I watched that show. And right. naturally, what was like at the top of the list, you know, for shows you might be interested in when it first popped, Squid Game was like at the very top of the list. Of course. Oh, yeah. Believe me, that algorithm is going to be forcing Squid Game until every Netflix user has watched it. I dare exactly. exactly. <laughs> but it's, you know what? It's it's really not a bad thing. Um, sometimes I get duped into watching something terrible um, or just like really like it doesn't. It's so culturally it's it's like too far away from like a recognizable cultural mm-hmm. thing that I've seen before that I just can't like quite wrap my head around it. But for the most right. part, and for most people, I, I think it's a good thing to to definitely get these sort of um, to get even if just by osmosis, just seeing Squid Game or some other foreign movie repeatedly in your Netflix queue. It's not the worst thing because you might check it out and you might see something interesting. Right, that that's exactly right. And if you are a fan of blood and guts getting splattered all over the place and a whole bunch of people dying, like it's you could watch a whole bunch of people dying and blood being splattered over the wall in Korean the same way you could watch it in English. The Koreans do it better. Uh, quite frankly, we stole all their goddamn horror movies. <laughs> yeah, that's that is uh, definitely right on that there. And if you and if for people out there who haven't seen Squid Game, yeah, it's got a lot of like blood and uh, guts and everything. Like I've said last week, not the craziest thing in the world, but it's pretty damn entertaining. Mm-hmm. So, so if you were to make a plea, you know, why would why do you think people should watch more foreign movies? Okay, so my obviously the first thing I'm going to say is the most basic, and that is to broaden your horizons and mm-hmm. everything like that. It is just a, a simple fact of life, right there. I also think that like people should watch these foreign movies just in general to see the differences between how they are done and how American movies are done. And believe mm-hmm. me, there's still three acts, there's still dialogue, there's still yeah. all the classic traditional plot points that you find in regular movies. But like, I feel that. If you watch like a movie like Out for Justice, for example, and then like go around and say like, man, like that's just like how like fighting should be done or that's straight up like Kung Fu. Yeah, you're going to sound like kind of on the dumb side. Now, like Seagal is definitely a master of many disciplines of martial arts and the master of a whole lot of other God and awful annoying things. But like those fighting styles may not necessarily like translate into like what it actually is coming from the country that it's actually from. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say that like in modern times and with technology and I think audience awareness and intelligence kind of growing over the years, what we're seeing fight wise may look a little bit more authentic than it used to be, especially when you were talking about some of these 80s action movies. But like 
you know, the comparison beyond the, the way that the fight scenes are done in some of these foreign movies are it's just like it's just like crazier. It's just like more shit going on. The the moves themselves are a little bit more authentic to the discipline itself because it hails from that country or mm-hmm. maybe like the country next door. So I think you get certain authenticities in foreign movies that you don't get in American movies, whether just, you know, fighting being the easiest example. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Dead on with that one. Also, you know, in a lot of these other foreign countries, as we learned about Indonesia and Thailand, you can just throw someone off a building. (laughs) Right. There is no union for stunt people in Indonesia. So if you want to throw someone off a building, you kind of can just do it. That backbreaking scene from the raid is ingrained in my mind forever. <laughs> like I, what, that is something that once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And to know that, like, that's a real dude, it's like holy shit, man! Like, that's 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 earning your day's pay right yep. there. Yep, and I'm, you know, I'm sure there were precautions taken and everything else, but like that stunt does not get done that way in the United States. At all. No. It just no. does not get done that way. There's um, uh, there's a movie, Ongbak, the Thai warrior, and it opens with all these people, like, rushing up this tree in, like, a competition. And mm-hmm. there are dudes definitely just falling out of this tree to the fucking ground. Like, from yeah. 15, 20 feet up, hitting branches and shit. And you can tell, like, you can tell, like, the, the base of the tree is padded. Like, you can definitely mm-hmm. see it. But nonetheless, these people fell from 15 to 20 feet, hitting branches and shit on the way down. Yeah, I'm not doing that at all. I don't even want to fall five feet, to be honest right. with you, or three, for that matter. Like, and I'm getting older and stuff, so like a fall is not what it was when I was younger. So like, I'm not mm. doing that shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I so you're you're dead on there, and I'll I'll add to it as well. The more exposure you get to to foreign movies and to like you know to the culture that created them, the more you get to learn and empathize with that other culture, like about what their yeah. what their oh, yeah. problems are you know like if especially if you're what you know if, if you're watching an action movie or a horror movie maybe not so much but some of these dramas you really get a look at like what is what is the big issue in korea what is the big issue in thailand or whatever it is you know is it class warfare is it um you, you know what, whatever it is drugs could be something along those lines when you when you watch those movies you just have a better you have more empathy for like what is ha- what is plaguing their culture or what is top of mind for for this particular culture oh it's a great way to put yourself into somebody else's shoes the best you can from thousands and thousands of miles away. And like, there are a lot of people out there, you know, and we have conversations about this specific group of people often that really just think that everything is here in the States and stuff that there like is no other world around us. And they don't like, they don't take the time to bother to expand their horizons and it makes them very, very closed off. And like, while you're not going to get, you know, the mo- you might not get like a super realistic, you know, critique on whatever the topic is, but like you're going to get enough of, you know, you're going to get enough of the, the, the bullet points, the important things mm-hmm. to actually like learn something here, you know, to like maybe learn something about the world and to in- make yourself like further enlightened because, you know, you're only if you're chances are if you're a person that's not really open to doing a lot of newer things or broadening your horizons you're probably only seeing like a certain amount of media probably coming from one of three different places. And those aren't necessarily the most like mind opening places to go for Mm. enlightened entertainment. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well said. Um, and you know, I don't want to pick on certain people, but, and you know, and it's, and it's not, 
I will say this. It's not like their fault necessarily. It's in a lot of cases. It's not, it's not a lot of people's fault necessarily. Um, but, but, you know, at some point in time, I would hope that you would be in, I would hope that as a, as a person of the world, you would be interested in the rest of the world, even in passing. Um, yeah. and what a really good way to sort of, you know, without having to travel to Japan or, um, South Africa or Brazil, those, those countries turn out a lot of movies and TV shows that you could watch, um, for at mm-hmm. least like a, at least a perspective on something that is going on elsewhere in the world. So, right. That is exactly right. Getting yourself a little bit of perspective and stuff. And I'll tell you, like, start by start by going to get some like non-american food someplace and then just build into movies from there i will personally tell you there's a lot of really great non-american food out there in the world that i i hadn't really got a chance to experience until i met jess and that is a really good gateway drug into getting yourself into some broadening of the horizons start with food then go to movies absolutely and we don't mean chipotle um (laughs) (laughs) fyi Um, no, a real, yes, actually that's a really good place to start. Start with the food, you'll like the food, and then you'll immediately want to go, well, gosh, this, this burrito was great. Let's get into, let's get into Guillermo del Toro's early work in Mexico. Mm -hmm. That I, honest to God, my first trip to Chipotle, I said the exact same thing after I was done with that burrito. (laughs) And just so we know, guys, Barrio doesn't count as a Mexican restaurant either. No, no, not at all. All right, so... What would your foreign film starter pack be for someone who isn't isn't as adventurous as you and I are? So we're, for this, two movies and then a director that people should check out. Okay, so um, the director is like the basically like the first like foreign director that I was able to consciously like remember their name. And this was Wolfgang Peterson. Das Boot was huge in the nineties foreign film wise. And he's gone on to do like a lot of American stuff. So I would say go with his early work. Um, you could definitely see some cool evolution of a director with him. Um, the two movies now, I kind of feel that and you may, we may cross lines on this here because the okay. movies I'm going to say are, I feel are like the, millennial dudes like starter pack to foreign films like i can almost see like one of those memes with the four blocks right now yes and i now these are these are mine and the the first one is run lola run that was like a crazy popular like foreign film Mm -hmm. and stuff we actually covered it in um our high school like film class and everything like that and around the time that we graduated David Cross, Mr. Show, and that did like a parody run, Ronnie run. There was like this movie. So like it kind of, there's some, there's some things there that kind of like, oh, pro, like, oh, whatever they, David Cross making a parody of this German film, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, then the second one is Amores Peros, which was the directorial debut, debut of Alejandro Gonzalez and Aratu. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one uh, came out, this was 2000. So this came out two years before we graduated. I saw, or I saw this movie in 2003 and this was like, no joke, just like, you know, dudes hanging out loaded on like a Saturday. Oh, yes. like, oh yeah. Wow. Here mm-hmm. we go. Like we got this, um, we got this like foreign movie that we could watch here. And I think it was actually on television too, like a, like a spike or like IFC or something around that time. Mm-hmm. So like, that was one that no joke me and this dude just drunk as hell. Like why get up and change the channel, <laughs> watch this movie. And it was awesome. Like it was fucking awesome. I remembered like leaving his place and I was just like, Holy shit, dude. Like, I can't believe that that movie was, did it was as, um, as moving as it was and stuff. So those are, those are my two movies and the, the one director. 
Love it. You know, it's it's funny because as soon as as soon as you mentioned the millennial foreign, like my brain went to both of those movies, and like I, I did not I did not pick them, but my brain went to both of those movies. I was I, I had like a few others in mind, but I'm like, oh, I'm sure he's gonna mention Franco Patente and Run Little Run, and I'm mm-hmm. very possible very possible he's gonna mention Amoris Perez because like you, those the viewing of those is about the same time, and I I think. I feel like I saw what was what was Fran- was Franco Potenta in Born Identity. That's like her first American movie. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's about right. Yeah, because it's not the girl from the Fifth Element. So yeah, that's you're right. So the yeah. Born Identity, which would have came out a couple years after um, we graduated high school, like be like nine or be like two thousand seven, four, three, something like that. Something like that, somewhere in that range. And that's like where I first saw her, and then. You know, for for me, backtracking on like Run Lola Run, um, and then obvious Amoris Peros, uh, that's like an obvious one. Like, sir, I swear to God, I think everyone who is interested in film and, and uh, every male who's interested in film at that point in time has seen Amoris Peros. No doubt oh, ex- about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Great. I mean, it's a great movie, but it is it is a great. It's such a it's such a it is it belongs in those four square names. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you're correct. But I'm gonna. I, I went a little bit different. Although I do, I we do have some crossover. But I'll, I'll start with the director, and it's the it's the man who kicked off, started in Japan, but ended up kicking it off here in the United States with like all these sort of the the imitation torture uh, torture porn movies like Hostel and, and those kind of movies. Um, and it's Takashi Miike, uh, of who originated this sort of. And he's worked in all sorts of genres like action movies, comedies, but like. Very, very much notable for starting the torture porn kind of genre of horror movies. And, but the difference being in Japan, his movies in Japan, there's a lot more, um, there's much more story to support the, the torture and the gruesomeness. Um, thinking, thinking in particular about this, uh, my favorite of his called Audition, um, mm-hmm. where it, the, it, it's this, how do I explain it? It's um, guy's a casting agent for um, you know, for commercials and TV shows. Like you know, not, nothing. He's not casting like the huge movies and stuff. Just like sort yeah. of a more of a blue collar kind of um, you know, entertainment job. And he's, I think, his wife died several years previous. So his friend has this idea. His friend of the agency has this idea to set him up to set him up with a woman from like a fake casting call, and finds quote unquote the perfect woman she's really nice very attractive she's a fucking psychopath i mean like deranged psychopath and mm-hmm. but like it it's a slow burn up until we get to the torture porn part like a very slow burn and it's really like a fucking trip and yeah once you know and there's some other movies like ichi the killer is a little bit more straightforward um it's like it's kind of this odd hybrid of like uh, action horror i guess crime horror i don't know i don't know how you call it but there is still more to support it there than something like hostile which i don't i don't mind hostile whatsoever like i'm not against it it's just what is the point of that movie oh just to watch people get tortured and that's jack off to it yeah there's really (laughs) nothing else to it and actually takashi Mike is in hostile he's uh he's leaving the hostile as they lead uh, Jay Hernandez into it. Um, oh no shit! Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so like, I mean, so he he kicks off he kicks that off in the in the early un- unwittingly kicks that off in Japan, 
uh, in like the late 90s, but then it, it carries over to the United States in the early 2000s. But beyond, but like his version of it is significantly better. There is just so much more to it. Um, not surprisingly. So Takashi Miike uh, from Japan, check his movies out. You can fucking check his comedies out. They're funny too. Like it's very bizarre. He works across all media. Like it's strange. <laughs> yeah. Comedies, torture porn. It, it's, he has a long filmography and everything is in it. It's very, it's very strange. But uh, since you brought him up and uh, since as of this recording, he passed a day ago, Wolfgang Peterson. Um, uh, in particular, I'm talking about Das Boot. Um it is one of those, it is one of the great war movies ever made. Absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, it is a top three war movie ever made. And to get it from the side of the Germans, um, you know, it strip away the idea of like the Nazis and everything else. They're German soldiers. Um, right. Strip that away. They are soldiers, sailors in this case, but soldiers who are just trying to serve their country and survive for each other and do things for each other. And sort of the, it's one of those things that sort of like, it, it, it doesn't erase the feelings of World War II, but it's a reminder that like, it's a reminder that there were regular people on both sides of this war. And right. like the big thing is them surviving this so they can get home for fucking Christmas. And they do, and they get fucking, spoiler alert for a 41 year old movie, they get fucking obliterated anyway. Um, in once they reach safe, once they think they reach something that's safe harbor. Um, sort of a just a, a a reminder of the senselessness and pointlessness of war hit both you know both sides of, of every conflict someone quote unquote innocent maybe not innocent but someone um, who's just doing their job gets punished for the mistakes of others that's right and here i am like on the wikipedia page and like in the first paragraph of the synopsis it definitely goes out of its way to mention that they mock hitler and stuff like that oh, yeah. you know that oh, yeah. it's definitely not people that are um your gung-ho german soldiers and stuff these are just like people you're right just just doing their jobs and everything yeah. which um you know there's definitely i i feel that somewhere in there there's definitely some sympathy to, to be felt and stuff like that you know especially in a story like this where it's basically on a submarine and stuff they're, they're not it's not like you're, you're trying to sympathize with like a nazi prison guard or something mm-hmm. like that you know it's a, a little bit more of a a less like that circumstance. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, and they do bad. Like, they they obliterate uh, an English, a British, sub, you know, a British ship after they had ar- thought they already sunk it. They kill a lot of mm-hmm. people. Um, like, it's, they're not innocents, but, it, you know, the point being, again, the point is the senselessness of war existed, ex- <clears throat> excuse me, I got to choke, existed on both sides. Right, exactly. And Jürgen Frock now, a young fucking Jürgen oh, Frock yeah. now. It's amazing how much uh, that guy seems to work his, uh, gets his name brought up in our um, he, he does podcast. a lot, actually. <laughs> he does a lot. Uh, and and finally here, a, a little comedy that I fucking love. I watch probably every couple of years, uh, Troll Hunter, uh, directed by Andre uh, Urvdal. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing his name correctly at all. From Norway. And it's a it is a fun sort of folklore comedy about like a found kind of happened towards the end of the found footage boom um Mm -hmm. for things and it's so it's like norway's version of a found footage story where the these uh college students are um are studying these hunters and like the one hunter turns out to be the titular troll hunter and it's like this fucking wild trip through these various um norwegian legends like in the woods it's really funny too Interesting. Yeah, I have not heard of this one. And when you Google Troll Hunter, Kelsey Grammer's picture comes up. He's, he's not, not in this it. movie, everybody. No. <laughs> no. 
Very cool. Yeah, I'll have to, I like the poster on this one, which is like this giant kind of troll thing with the legs and this car driving up to it. It's cool. Yeah, it's it's a fun little movie. Um, goof, like it definitely, it definitely is one of those things. Like if you're if you're even remotely familiar with the idea of what like a a more classical troll from mythology is like, then like mm-hmm. a lot of it makes more sense. Like there's one literally living under a bridge. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I got this one brought up. I might have to look into this. I it's just a fun got two. Movie. I just got two B. So let me see if it's. I'll have to check that and see if it's on there. I think it's on Amazon as well. Oh, very good. Very very good. Because um, yeah, that's weird. I watched a movie on Tubi, and then like the next week, it showed up on Amazon. So maybe there was some crossover there. Good to know. Yeah. All right. All right. So, oh, quick recap there. So I had uh, Takashi Miike, um, and then Das Boot from Wolfgang Peterson and Troll Hunter from Andre Urvdal. Uh, your three again. And mine are Wolf, or Wolfgang Peterson as a director, Amores Peros, the 2000 film by Alejandro Gonzalez and Aratu, um, and Lola Renant, a.k.a. Run Lola Run, the 1998 German film by Tom Twiker. There you go. All right, let's move on to our next segment, Court Voyage. Uh, that means uh, short trip in, Fran- in French. Um, so we are bringing short films back and uh, for this little segment here. Chema, here's why. Um, I, I thought about, like, you know, we could each do, like, a full-blown movie, but I kind of wanted the option to have, like, to have more countries represented. And certainly we're not going to sit and watch, like, five or six full feature length movies. So this is a, I think this is a much better way to kind of attack this. Plus Mm -hmm. you get a lot more of the, I I think, especially after watching your two, you get a lot more of the like sort of um, distilled, like when we talked about like what is top of mind for, for, you know, directors and other directors and writers in other countries. um, Mm -hmm. This is a much more distilled version of that in a short movie. So like we're we're kind of getting these ideas much more raw. Oh yeah, definitely dude. And there's like, there's just a lot more creativity to play around with here and stuff. And like, in terms of the, um, in, in terms of like the outline and the assignments and everything, it, we could just like have some fun with some short films and stuff like that and pick something that's crazy and weird and like, you know, kind of like a, a cool representation of like the, the style of film from the country that we're selecting. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now I will say this, we, I did pick one that we have talked about previously um, um, mostly because I wanted to have a more, it, it was, you hadn't seen it. So it was a very one way discussion. Okay. So I wanted to have more, it's the, your last day on earth. Um, oh, cause I loved that one yes. very much. Actually, I, I, yes. I wanted to make sure that we had like a more full body discussion on it. So let's just, uh, we'll go through here. We'll just lay out the movies that we, that we watched. Um, and then we'll dive right into them. So how about you give me, give me your two first and then I'll follow up. Okay, so after realizing that one of the ones I had originally chosen had some English in there, because go figure, when I was skipping through the video originally, I caught only the Japanese parts, mm-hmm. um, which does kind of bug me. Um, I went with a 2014 South Korean um, body horror movie called Human Form by Dion No, D-O-Y-E-O-N. And then I also went with Toyland by Jochen Alexander Freydank, which was made in 2007 and won the best live action short film at the Oscars in 2009. Mm -hmm. Very good choices. Um, And I went with, uh, as previously mentioned, Your Last Day on Earth uh, by Mark Martinez Jordan from Spain. 
and I, I, I can't wait to have this discussion. The, uh, the Helsinki Mansplaining Massacre. Uh, by again, I'm going to butcher. I'm telling you, this is these are the names I have problems with. These Scandinavian names. Um, mm-hmm. Il, I believe it's Ilja Ratsi uh, from Finland. Uh, Finnish, a Finnish short film that is I can't wait to talk about. Um, so I, I guess I don't know. Take your pick. What would you like to talk about first? Okay, let's start off with the Toyland one. This was def- this one right here was um, a little bit more straightforward and not as uh, crazy, twisted horror stuff as our other ones. So I figure we can get this one out of the mm-hmm. way. And um, I will tell everybody that this um, basically the movie is a short film. It's no longer than twelve minutes long. Um, it covers two families. One family is a Jewish family, and the other family is a German family in World War Two. Um, there is some really interesting and cool kind of cutting, which I will kind of get into as we, um, as I explain the plot of the story and the plot of the the short film, I should say. And, um, okay. So what happens is, is like, there are these two families and like, you could see that these two families get along, you know, their, their kids are playing the piano and everything. There's this really cool kind of foreshadowing opening shot of piano rhythms followed by um, a toy train Mm -hmm. and the, um, sometime, after that, the Jewish family is taken by the Nazis. We, it's it's kind of like implied, though. It's not like, you know, outright like said and stuff. It's like, oh, where the hell are they? They had to go because it's not outright explained because they're explaining this. They're explaining that to a child that like, hey, your friend and the family are no longer there. Mm-hmm. And when the child asks the mother, like, hey, where did my family go or my friend go? She tells him that they went to Toyland is just basically like the equivalent of sending your dog to a farm upstate. Um, but in, but in the Holocaust, like your how your parents tell you that kind of stuff, she was telling them that they went to Toyland just basically as a lie to, you know, not tell the kid that they were going to a concentration camp where they would more than likely ultimately die, you know, mm-hmm. which, which kid would want to hear that. So, um, <clears throat> here's where this like cool kind of editing display comes into and comes into, um, into the movie. So the mother goes to like the train yard and everything like that, thinking that her son is, was taken, you know, cause he wanted to go with his friend and all that stuff. And there's this, you know, you see right. it on, on, you see it via this like cross cutting or whatever, where the son is following the family. Like he wants to go. It's his friend. Mm-hmm. And then when um, she gets to the the door of the train and yells for the boy, the it's the, the Jewish family who live next door and it's their son. And they're all three of them are standing looking at her. And when she realizes that her son is not there, she decides to save their son, David, and, you know, basically take her back to take him back to her place and, you know, be with her son, Heinrich, and raise him as her own and everything. Mm-hmm. And like. It's um, number one, like as as our country and everything like that uh, falls more into like something like it, something like this believable and the wrong party comes into play. I think World War Two stories are now more relevant than ever. And this one right here was like I said, it's a very, very straightforward. It's a very, very solid story. It's something that I'm sure millions of people went th- through and, and, you know, just having being taken or even knowing somebody who mm-hmm. is being taken by the Nazis. And also like, it just has this really awesome kind of heartwarming ending where 
this German mother decides to save this son, you know, and it's one of these things where like she, she doesn't have to do it. There's no stakes. She basically thinks she's going to go in there and save her kid. And then when she realizes that her son's not there, decides to do this, you know, decides to do this good deed and the parents and everything decide to get him to safety. So he doesn't have to go through the, um, the concentration camp experience. Right. Exactly. This, I really, really like this one quite a bit. Um, I, I guess who wouldn't necessarily like this one quite a bit. But um, even though it was very straightforward, it was definitely a very sort, a very sort of um, a very sort of powerful statement about like the power of of one person's opportunity. Basically, mm-hmm. this um, Frau. Oh gosh, what is? What is Heinrich's? What is their last name? It's kind of one of those crazy letters, and it. it's like Messner or something like that. Uh, Frau so. Messner. Frau Messner. Um, I, I know we don't get her first name, but, but we, Frau Messner. But when Frau Messner has like the opportunity to actually do something that they don't, you know, it's very clear that they make it very clear at the beginning of the film that um, the Messners are not, you know, pro Nazis. They are not, um, right. you know, they are not siding with Hitler and the Nazis on this one. And um, the fact that like this this woman has you know just from a, just a series of of acts, you know mistakes and coincidences she's actually presented with this opportunity to do something, and mm-hmm. it seems you know like in the in you know when we talk about like you talk about the Holocaust how many people were killed, um, you know executed in this it seems small but it's it's not to right. save that one life is not a small thing. And the ending with the two uh, with the two sets of old hands is awesome. Yeah, that is really fucking cool. Yeah, you got that right, dude. That's uh, really the, sweet. yeah. The we we get the opening piano playing with the kids, and then we get the closing with like two sets of like old man hands playing. You know, sit, mm-hmm. you know, you know, insinuate you want to see their faces, but like, you know, Heinrich and David both lived like happy lives, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Like the the power of one person and an opportunity. And like, yeah, it's like if you're if you're talking like numbers, like one life may not seem like a big ass deal here. But like when you look at the situation and how many people were stripped from their homes, had all their stuff taken from them, put in these camps and stuff like saving one life is like a big fucking deal. Right. You know, and like the fact that there is that implication at the end that, you know, that that he lived, he lived on to go on and be an old man and everything like that. And that's. I guess in many ways that's what a lot of us want is to just live a long, have a long, full life. Yep, exactly. It was super powerful, um, really, really poignant. And again, it's it's this is this is God, textbook example of the skill that it takes to tell something this impactful in what was it, fourteen minutes? Not even that. It's probably yeah. like twelve. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that is that that is some serious skill to pull this one off, and to pull it off, and to leave you with such like a nice, a a haunting but like a, a good haunting final image. Yeah, you're right. It is fourteen minutes. I checked it. I bet on the Wikipedia page yeah. too. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it is it's something that I, I think is pretty special and stuff. And like, it's one of these short films that um, it just addresses like this. It's, it addresses this topic that's unfortunately we're going to, it's going to be around for a while, you know? And oh, yes. um, I think that people need to uh, learn about this stuff more so now than ever, because we are, we are in danger of history, like repeating itself. Like we're, yes. we're on, we're on notice in that regard. Yes, absolutely. Uh, final thought here. Um, even though, 
you know, we're talking a short film that was, you know, that won <laughs> that won Academy Awards. Um, it, this still didn't. Um, they did a really good job on what I'm guessing was a pretty small budget to make it look convincing. Yeah, um, it was. 30,000 euros. The actors worked for free. Like, yeah, it was, this is a small budget, small budget. It still held up really well. There was no, um, there wasn't anything about it that felt like super out of place. Like it, during the last like week, I've been sort of flipping through various short films, kind of looking for something a little bit different. And in, in some of them that tried to do historical stuff or, you know, a little bit more elaborate stuff, the the strings and tape really showed basically mm-hmm. um they definitely do not hear at all it looks great oh yeah the production quality like the costuming and everything is is great like those those nazi guard suits and everything like that do not look like they don't look like knockoff stuff like that actually looks like legitimate costuming and even like the fact that they managed to get all the like these sets like a like a train yard and everything just to have the like, use for that on a short film like i I'm just I'm just impressed that they managed to stretch out this thirty thousand yep. as well as they did because a lot of that stuff can't be cheap. No, not at all, not at all. Yeah, very well done. I really like this movie. That's Toyland, or if you're German, what was it's? I dude, I love German words. It's like there yep. is they have a, a they have a word for everything, and there isn't there isn't a single word they can't make very complicated. Um, yes. So this is Spielzugland. Spielzugland. There you go. Y- yes. Yeah. Let's make and toy he, real long. Yeah, Spiel's play and Zug, like, they're, they Zug is train, so, like, I, I think Zug is, like, something, like, mobile, like, a, like, like a small Toy train. thing. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, I, I think, I think it's one of those things they don't have an exact, it's, again, they don't have an exact translation for, so they just included 18 words. That right. smashed them all together. So that's what they're famous for. Um, if they can't, if they can't think of it, they'll take all the words they can't describe it and make it into one. Um, but it, really love this one. It was really good. Um, yeah, good stuff. Should we lighten it up a bit or continue on with something a little bit heavier? Um, you know, let's 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 heavy it up. Let's keep the okay. heavy stuff rolling. Do you want to do you want to jump into human form? Or you want to jump into your last day on Earth? Okay, let's do let's do human form. We'll knock okay. that one out of the way right quick. That one's not all that long. So, um, yeah, human form. This is a 2014 um, South Korean, not uh, North Korean. I, I don't. I, I, I swear never. To God, I, I don't even know if you could find North Korean short films. I don't think you can. I never even. I never even when I write it down for anything. I just write Korea because like there is no chance. Yeah. That I'm talking about North Korea unless it's like, I, I don't know. You know, Kim did something recently. Right. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, that's really the only time that um, – yeah, it's crazy. Like, I don't even really hear it referred to as South Korea so much in the news. It's just like referred to as Korea and stuff unless it's North Korea, which you know, really wants to hear what's going on over there. So um, this film right here, this is a short one. This is like – this one is no more than 12 minutes. This mm-hmm. is directed by Dion No. That's Y. E-O-N, no, N-O-H, and stars uh, Seon Kim, Yi Yun Lee, and Jinsen Son, and that's just the first uh, couple of names that popped up on my IMDb page, even though there are more people that are in the film. Mm. And this is basically a, basically a statement about plastic surgery condensed into a Korean body horror uh, movie. And now it's not body horror in like the, the Cronenberg sense, you know, like you're not seeing stuff growing on other people, but you are seeing the human body, 
used in a horrific way or at least in a creepy ass way with all these faces and stuff like that these just creepy as shit faces and you know long story short there's actually like a very very simple plot here and that is um you know that everybody in this like you know world um has this plastic surgery uh, the main character wants to get the plastic surgery, but it's expensive. Um, the, the parents won't pay for it. So she goes to like a research, like, hey, get this plastic surgery done for free. You know, like almost like a more sophisticated version of like a, a back alley uh, med center. And um, she is, you know, they tell her to like open up her eyes. Um, we don't ever see what she looks like with the, uh, the plastic surgery. We just kind of, um, we see a, the, her face covered. And then at the end, she's going to have dinner with her family and we just kind of see the back of her head and they're kind of just, we get to see like some of their reactions and then it, it fades out. It's, it's actually very, very simple. This would, this is kind of in the same vein of the, the one short movie that I uh, had us watch when we did short films that was almost like a, this is like somebody just like basically like prepping cells and stuff like that for like five oh, minutes. Yes, but yes. Yeah. But, but it did, but you know, this, it did have a start, uh, middle and end. It, it makes some, you know, very interesting points about plastic surgery and everybody's desire to like, look like everybody else or not look like who they are. Uh, and I actually just, I thought it was kind of enjoyable. It's, it's not like a game changer drop every single fucking thing and watch. But, um, when you are trying to think of something on the fly because your original selection had some English mixed into it, I thought that this turned out to be a pretty good save. I, I really like this movie quite a bit. Um, and the, the makeup work is exquisite. Because I mean that's mm-hmm. that is like physical makeup work. It's not, um, but like at first when I saw it, like when they when we get like the first look at the people's faces, um, mm-hmm. uh, like my instinct was like is that kind of green screening or like what are the you know little digital stuff? But then you can like really see it around their eyes. Like this is a lot of extensive makeup to give them this very, I would call it a very sharp look. Literally, like their faces yes. look sharp and angular. Yeah. And oh yeah. It, it is it's jarring but like it sort of is that um it sits at that point at like the uncanny valley right like where it's still these people are still very easily recognizable as human but mm-hmm. like they're they're so distorted that you're kind it really throws you off and um so i, I did like a little bit of, of like further research into this and by further research i mean some people in the youtube comments actually had um, some interesting like explanations for this. It certainly is about you know plastic surgery or whatever, but it's also I guess it's also critiquing a very particular um, a very particular look that young women not specifically a weird angled face, but like there is this very particular look that young women in, in Korea like kind of strive for that is that is reminiscent of like particular like pop stars and movie stars, especially like the K-pop mm-hmm. stars, and sort of this. You know, like the extremes that they'll go to to have like the correct hair, the correct you know makeup, the correct look, whatever. It's it mm-hmm. is very much just a critique about the um, you know the almost the basically the unattainable beauty standards, which is universal, right? Like for every country has right. unattainable beauty standards. Um, but certainly, it's this this is very particular to this this type of beauty standard that is present in Korea for specifically for like teenage girls. Yeah, that's yes, it is exactly right. Like there are 
unattainable beauty standards in every fucking country. This one definitely focuses. I know exactly what you mean. Like when they, when it's this like kind of like specific look for like Korean women, Asian women and stuff like that. I know exactly what you mean. And like, it's crazy. Like you know, we have the, we have a lot of it here. And since I live in Los Angeles, I see a lot of people every day at my gym that are trying to make themselves look uh, and achieve the impossible standards of beauty and everything. So what they're hitting here is it's, it's a, it's not necessarily like evergreen because it's, I don't think that it's something that like everybody goes through, but it's definitely mm-hmm. something that does have a mass appeal to it. Oh, it's, it's, especially if you happen to be, uh, there, there are definitely um, pr- certain physical pressures for young men. But they are mm-hmm. significantly more present every day, like in magazines, in, in you know, mag- magazines, billboards, ad, TV ads, radio ads, for that, for Christ's sake. They're much more present for women worldwide than they are for men. Could not agree with you more on that. Like women really feel that um, societal pressure and stuff because they're just yes. inundated with it forever and ever and ever. You know, like that's and it's just constant, just this constant stream of reinforcement. You know, and any time that um, it's almost like any time that somebody who's like like on the normal looking side lands a job in like an advertisement or like a commercial, you're just like, they're just opening up the floodgates with 10 other people who are super hot just to like, Hey, you guys, we threw this one normal person in here because you know, we have to, but here's 10 more people that are the exact opposite of Mm -hmm. what the like true beauty and all that stuff is. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. That was sort of the weirdest, the weirdest like unintentional part of this, of the like doing research for, at various points for this episode, I was looking up, like, I wanted to look up, like, certain names of actresses and stuff or actors because, um, like, I just didn't have them offhand. And I would just be confronted with lists that was, like, that were, like, oh, here are the here are the prettiest um, Korean actors, actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, right. like, well, I don't, I mean, okay, sure, yeah, like, this, this people are definitely very attractive, but, like, I just want to, like, find out who they are. Like, do they have right. movies? Are they talented? <laughs> but like, it's you were just bombarded with this kind of shit, and like, it's and I think it makes it. I think it, it also makes like a further point that like the the two um, the young actress who plays like our main character, and then the the other girl that she's kind of talking to, um, you know, at, at the clinic and like at school or whatever. Objectively, mm-hmm. you're really cute young women. Like, yeah, like there's nothing wrong with them whatsoever. But even, but even like these people, and I feel fine saying it because I'm sure they're like actually like 20, 21, 22 years old playing teenagers. Um, but even like objectively gorgeous women are told that they're not good enough. But everywhere, I just they're yeah. objectively gorgeous, but it's not good enough. Oh yeah, I, but totally. This happens all the time. It's almost like no matter how hard how hot you are, you're never hot enough. Or there's somebody else who's hotter and stuff. Like yeah, all totally. This is something that still goes on to this day. It's a, a really fucked up, you know. And and it just does a number to people that really like take it too far, you know. For yep. people that really are trying to become the hottest person ever, you're going to do some things to yourself that probably you're going to regret later on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so, Chema, two really good choices, actually. Like, I really, really enjoyed both of these. Um, and I, simply for, even if you're not into the messaging of human form, the, the makeup work is fucking worth it. It's fucking bizarro. Yeah. It, it's out of, mm-hmm. it's definitely out of someone's nightmare. Oh, without a doubt, definitely. All right. Let's, you know, let's double down in seriousness here. I want to, let's save the funny shit for last. Um, so, let's, let's transition here into uh, your last day on Earth. 
uh, from Mark Martinez Jordan uh, out of Spain. Again, this is a movie that we've talked about. I think we talked about in January. January, okay. Okay, I think. I, I could be wrong, but I think we talked about it in January. Um, yes, so, we did. Yes, yes. 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 Mm-hmm. So the the basic premise here is um, there's there's a, a solution for people to there's a or excuse me, time travel is possible sort of. Um, you can go back to like one point in time and you have to like go through this like ridiculous costuming stuff and take these time travel pills um, that are conveniently labeled very large on a on a on, a, on an oversized comical looking. Um, uh, pill bottle for you, uh, and then you pass out and you wake up back in. I forgot what year it's supposed to be. Nineteen ninety six. Yeah, I that I cannot remember the um the 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 year that they wind up. I know they in. I know they give a year. I just can't remember specifically, but it doesn't really matter. Point being, um, this guy is traveling back in time to the last day. His you know what he th- what he thinks is the last day, uh, or what is the last day for his. Um, his wife, um, lover, whatever, on Earth, um, who died in a terrorist attack at a park. Uh, actually, killed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And he is going back in time to, uh, you know, to to see her. And as it turns out, he's actually trying to figure out a way to um, sort of change time. Um, you know, even though most, as most time travel movies will tell you, you cannot do that. Um, and in the course of in the course of his travels back to this last day. Before she gets killed in the terrorist attack, um, he encounters someone else dressed similar. The, similarly, they're wearing like these fox masks um, so they can conceal their identity so other people can't tell who they are. It's We'll get into that part of it because it's ludicrous, but it's effective. Um, mm-hmm. But he sees someone else in a fox mask, although the fox mask is different. Um, he's more what you think of like a red fox mask and this other person is in a gray fox mask. Yep. Um, and <clears throat> as it turns out, it's... It's all a big. It's all a big ruse um, to this uh, to this time traveler. Um, it is a group of people preying on the um, on the sadness and grief of others. You know, extorting them for money, drugging them, and then setting up a whole scenario um, in which is it is you know to them it looks like it's the past. It's this pa- It's this last day on Earth for all these people before there's a terrorist attack, and they have in fact targeted other family members and people who had lost loved ones in this terrorist attack. Um, mm-hmm. the whole thing goes awry. Our, um, our protagonist gets, uh, gets shot and killed. Um, and over standing over top of him is the, is the man in the, uh, white wolf mask or the white, uh, gray fox mask, excuse me, that he encounters. Um, but as it turns out, time travel is in fact real. And it was his son time traveling back to the last day of his father's day on earth who was killed in this ruse, um, this ruse that they tried to, that this group tried to pull off or did pull off on him. But um, at some point in the future, they have the technology to actually do this. So he goes back to see his father's last day on Earth. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very kind of, it's a little time loopy and weird, but when you watch it, it makes sense. And the thing that stands out about it is despite the very inherent, ridiculous looking nature of it, it looks ridiculous. It still really cuts to your core that in this sort of, in this sort of like very comical looking setup, you you can still talk about the things that people would do when they are absolutely overwhelmed by grief and mm-hmm. literally money is no object. The the fact that like oh here take these time travel pills and lie down in this hotel like people will believe things like that if they are in fact taken up by enough grief and that's kind of the point of this uh, of this short story or this short movie. Oh yeah, dude, this one was 
quite the entertaining one here. I actually love the shit out of this one. Um, for the for just let me get in my first initial thoughts is that um, these the overall structure and kind of the formula of the movie is fantastic. It's um you know for twelve minutes at the at the most whatever this is, mm-hmm. um, right off the bat you know what's going on. You get the fucking rules like right away, like within yep. the first three minutes. You have basically everything that you need to know, and then it goes into this like I'm telling you, just this kind of like emotional fucking story here of this guy like watching the, the love of his life and everything on the day that you know she is supposed to die. You learn all about the the, the bombs and everything like that, um, and then when you find out that. It's that it's not her. It's it's just like the twist up until the way end, you know. And even mm-hmm. like the the idea with the son happens in like the the last like forty five seconds of the uh, of the the film and all that stuff. And it just keeps on upping the stakes until the last possible point. And in the last possible point, you get an awesome, really awesome twist with with the son, which which I dug. So those are my mm-hmm. initial like opening things. I just love the way this was set up. It gives you everything you need to know, twists, stakes, all the way to the end. Love that part about it. Yep. The absurdity and the ludicrousness of the, the fox mask, that is like this ludicrousness that just borders on fucking brilliant, where you're like, where the hell did this come from? But somehow this really fucking works. You know, it just it really, really works. And I I know that I keep for some reason going back in my mind to like the lobster where like these people have to they have to wear stuff, I think, to like yeah. hunt the, the people that are trying to escape from the hotel or whatever it is. So there is just this like you know, there is the lobster. You think it's just this guy in, a, in this hotel. And then there's just this absurd part where the current guests hunt the people that are trying to escape. It's this genius ludicrousness that like, you could only really see it. Or you only really know that it's genius. Like when you're watching it and everything. And like, I got to say that I was quite moved by the, the speech that the main character gives. It's just like, yeah, I want to tell you that it's our last day. I want to do this. I want to do that. But he's aware of the rules and, in the end, he takes the initiative to to break the rules and everything, which is you know like the the red flag for him to be shot by these people. And then you are with the hacktivist. You find out the whole plan, and then bam! This out of nowhere, the one and only other fox match just happens to be this guy's son. It was really good stuff, dude. This is a really cla- really good one. And for one of these short films that like, if you take away like. Like I said, the ludicrous, that's just genius with the fox mask. But there, things about it, like, kind of look like you and I could pull together some money oh, and for make the sure. costumes and everything. And for a movie that looks like you and I can afford to make it, this looked really fucking good. Like, they just used everything the right way. Like, all the shots were done in the right way. So, like, yeah, you could tell these guys are wearing, like, kind of cheaper costuming, but... For some reason, it still works. And when you find out that they're they're con men, it's like, yeah, of course, these guys yep. just take the cheapest possible things and, and just, you know, make it. So it all fits together in this really cool and unique way. Yeah, there are there are literally fake birds chirping. Um, they're like a little mm-hmm. statue, like cutouts. Um, the bombs right. are like the bombs are like, like <clears throat> excuse me. Goodness gracious. Man. Throat's been doing it all day. Maybe I have COVID again. Um, I don't. I don't think so. But maybe. Um, 
yeah, like the bombs look they look like a like a Looney Tunes you know yeah. dynamite setup that you'd buy from Acme. Um, mm-hmm. but like they're plastic and they're like everything looks so fake. And then when you kind of get to the like, so at first you're like, God, so so fucking absurd. But you're right. Once you learn that this group, the hacktivist group, are con men, it's like, oh, well, of course. Why would they spend money on making this look too real when they don't have to at all? Like the, the actress who plays this man's, um, you know, wife, love of his life, uh, just wearing a shitty wig and and sunglasses, like doesn't even look remotely like his wife. Um, mm-hmm. But. Again, these people have bought so deeply into their grief, they do not fucking care. No matter how right. big the red flags are, like, you know, like from the beginning, like when you, when you, the setup for him to time travel, quote unquote, oh, don't worry, take these pills and you'll be there. Like, it, it, it's, right. it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, how do you, you know, but once you, again, once you buy into the lie, you know, you'll you'll just keep going with it if if your grief is in fact that is isn't that over is in fact that overwhelming. Right, it's, it's just like Nora and the leftovers and stuff. She's willing to get put into a machine that supposedly zaps you into a whole into the you know whatever it is the the upside down of the leftovers, and um, because you are like that ridden with grief, and I mean even just her getting shot, you know, like once a week by her her prostitute bullet person or mm-hmm. whatever it is, it just like those kinds of things just really show you what people will do when when they are suffering from immense grief. Yep. It, this is yeah. This is a good one, and it and it, it is, it's it's heavy, but like, man, it, it, there are still moments where it's it's almost it's laugh out loud funny, like it really yeah. truly is laugh out loud funny to a few parts, and it, and the fact that um, Martinez Jordan uh, so definitely balances that together is is again just so skillful that like you can pack all of this into less than fifteen minutes. It's in the beginning. You're just like, if you break this rules, we are going to kill you. Yeah, and that so real, funny. like, loud and absorbent bonsai sort of way and stuff. Like, there's all this ridiculousness in there, but it just it fits together so well. And in the end, you have like a really serious like statement and story to be told. Yep. Yep. Absolutely loved it. Um, and I'm glad that we got to have like a more complete conversation on it as opposed to me just telling you how good it was. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's let's finish this off. Let's take a trip up to Finland to lighten this up a little bit uh, as we talk about the Helsinki Mansplaining Massacre. It's right there in the title, um, how ridiculous this one is. Again, directed by Ilja Rautsi, I believe is how you pronounce it, but I could be wrong. Um, so this one finds, um, this is definitely a send-up of a lot of um, horror movie tropes. Um, and instead of, um, you know, it's, a, it's the couple in the, in the woods, car crash, the um, I, I I don't know that they're outwardly sort of quote unquote hicks or hillbillies, but it kind of seems like they're supposed to be the Finnish version of that. Mm-hmm. You know, like a yeah, Finnish country oh, people, yeah. I guess. Um, are, are there anything besides Finnish country people? I don't know Finland that well. I know Helsinki's a fairly big they, city, but they'd be called Fix, I think. Fix. Like there you go. No oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But certainly, it is playing on that sort of trope um, that they're they're kind of driving through the country. Um, they're leaving their, they're heading back to the city or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly, but car crash in the country and they get taken in by this sort of more, um, more country family in Finland. And, um, instead of them being in, in imminent danger of being killed, uh, the, I, I've totally forgot the main character's name. Um, it's, oh gosh, 
I'll look it up. It could just be like Anna or something like that. It, 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 something short. But um, our main character, uh, we're following around female protagonist. Um, wearing a well-placed Suspiria shirt uh, from the original, like, 1970 or 80, whatever, cover. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but we're what, we're what we're here with, she has to survive men interrupting her and telling her how things is, how things are. Yep. Um, and it just sort of escalates from there. Men telling her when she should get pregnant. Men telling her how to raise children, blah, 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 whatever. It's, again, it's right there in the title. But... It, it, I love how we go, how, I love how it starts as this sort of like, in the same way that these types of horror movies slowly escalate to, you know, the the hid, the the hillbillies, the hicks or whatever, you know, then just chasing down the people to kill them. It's just like an increasing violation of her space, of mm-hmm. complete strangers telling her, you know, about like, oh, you're almost 38. Well, that's... That's, you're going to be too old to have a child by then. And, you know, prime childbearing years are really, you know, if you're 35, you're already in your prime childbearing years. Like, who the fuck mm-hmm. tells, like, you know, who the fuck says that to women? There are men that right. do. They just opt to. Um, so we get this slow build, and then I love when it turns into the zombie movie. And it's, these men are so fucking disturbed by her presence that she dare have an opinion on anything especially i love the the uh the pinhead uh the hellraiser uh little statue that he has how offensive it is to one of the um one of the um i don't know family members how offensive it is that she knows anything about horror movies and that she Mm -hmm. actually wrote like a dissertation on horror movies and culture and once like her presence in the house sort of spreads and like all these men turn into these fucking zombies that just like repeat mansplaining lines over and over again. Um, and then there is a massacre. She does definitely kill all of them. Um, her husband uh, or boyfriend, not entirely clear, I'm assuming it's a husband, is sort of the last man standing. And of course, he does the uh, he does the, the internet white knight kind of bullshit. Um, I'm on your side, but not all men are like this. Not all men. In fact, those are his last words. Not all men. Right, um, right. Something that women hear day in and day out. Not all men are like this. And she runs him over with her truck and she escapes with a uh, the, the pregnant wife of one of the men that she murdered. Um, I, I very, very much love this. This is a send-up. But also I love, like, I, I just love the the thoroughness with which... The thoroughness with which they they explored this sort of analogy, and also how seamlessly it fit into the horror genre. Yeah, you know something like I'm actually surprised that there isn't like an American feature length of this somewhere. It just feels like that this somebody over here is either writing this movie or it's in development somewhere because the the general premise is pretty fucking awesome. And the idea of just like the, the horrors of what women go through in terms of mansplaining and just even the utter offensiveness of mansplaining and things that like, we really have no position to talk about whatsoever in terms of pregnancy and and stuff like that, you know? So like, I gotta say, I, I, we will probably be seeing something like this in America sometime mm. soon, like a Tucker and Dale versus evil, but it's mansplaining yes. type thing. That, and like, yes, big, thank you. Big Tucker and Dale versus evil vibes. Big time. Yeah, definitely dude. And like everything once again, builds so nicely. And even to the point where the guy with the gun, is like, name your top five horror movies and, and all that stuff was just hysterical. It was really good. Fucking like a great use of um, the situation to make the most out of the comedy. And Mm. like, I gotta say, I, 
I really laughed at the idea that even in Finland, parallel parking and women is, is <laughs> yes. it's almost like, like parallel parking of, of all the crossover stuff, parallel parking and um, like the zombie scene when everybody goes full nuts, crazy. And like, she's walking down the hallway and the other woman is there. Who's just like, yeah, you know, we, we can't, they're thinking, you know, we can't interrupt them when they think all this other stuff. And just the, the, the twists and turns that it takes from there in this short amount of time, I really dug even the husband, like with the knife in the air doing like the, the closing shots of Leatherface with the chainsaw, mm-hmm. just like waving it and stuff. And like, I was actually wondering what was going to happen there. If she was just going to drive off and it was going to, you know, play off the, the, the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, massacre, but it didn't. She ran him the fuck over. Yeah, it was great. I loved my favorite, my favorite sort of man's, well, there's two, my two favorites. Sort of how the, um, the housewife tells her like, oh, they're in, they're stuck in mansplaining mode. We just, yeah. you just have to nod and compliment them. <laughs> like that's how you get right. through them. Um, I love that moment. And then after she just fucking slaughters all of them, I love, I love that even after, even after all of this, the little, and this is definitely a commentary on how we teach it to our kids or, or, you know, young boys, the young boy, even after all this happens is explaining to her how a gun works and then shoots himself in the face with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally, yeah. That was a good one for sure. Yeah. It's just, that right there is just a great enough statement about men right there. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, here's this gun that we blow our own head off with it. I, I, I do wish, I mean, it was great. I, I really liked it. And, and she has like that, like you said, like she has the, a lot of the, she has that look that a lot of the final girls have in, in various horror movies, just completely fucking covered in blood. Um, mm-hmm. But I kind of, my only sort of like, I don't know, adjustment, I guess. I wish that every time she kind of, I wish she would have like, once the jig was up, that, you know, she couldn't get past them anymore. I kind of wish she would have just thrown out, like, biting comments about horror movies or whatever, and that would have yeah. made their heads explode or something. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, when she went right for the gun, it's it was it was a little bit too far of a jump. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, it, it's just like me getting off of this podcast and going on a murder rampage. You know what I'm saying? It's just way too far of a... Uh, of a jump, but since it was in the horror genre and everything like that, in this kind of absurdity, it, it does work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are other ways where it, it could have been better, like the snide comment thing and having their head explode that way, I think plays more into the overall message and kind of like the theme of the movie. It would, would be an ending like that. But like for, I guess just to watch some heads get blown up and for gore sake, I mean, it, it did work, you know, it definitely worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it still totally worked, but I, I'm sort of imagining, like, in my head immediately, I was like, oh, I wish she would have just, like, looked at him and said, like, said something like, um, said something like to the, to the horror movie fanatic, said something like, uh, Jason's overrated, Freddy Krueger eats his lunch every day of the week, and then, like, his head mm-hmm. just fucking explodes against the wall, or, you know, at right. the very end, instead of running her husband over, he, I don't know, she says something like, um, when he says, not all men... Um, you know, she makes a quip of that, and then like he just fucking like has a heart attack and dies or something. Like that was that was yeah. the only thing I would have changed whatsoever. But I really fucking love this. I and I think you're right. There's definitely gonna this. I think this is from 2017. Um, there's definitely gonna be some kind of version of this, either a, either an Americanized short film version of this or something. We're gonna see this pop up mm-hmm. again somewhere. Yeah, this is too strong of a concept for Americans not to steal. <laughs> like, and and it fits so perfectly with 
the times and like the recent kind of um, the recent kind of uprising and discussions about women's rights and everything like that and equality. I think this fits in so with the times. I'm it's one of these deals where like I, I can't believe somebody hasn't that we haven't gotten this already. You mm-hmm. know, like somebody wasn't writing the American version of this during the pandemic. Yeah, ex- exactly. Exactly. All right. So just a quick recap here. What were your, your two movies? Okay, it's Human Form, the 2014 short film, and Toyland, the 2007 short film. <clears throat> I had Your Last Day on Earth. I'm not going to lie, I don't remember the years. I should have written that down. Um, Out of Spain by Mark Martinez Jordan, and Helsinki Mansplaining Massacre by Ilja Rautsi from Finland. All right, Chema, let's hop into this next segment Los Vengadores Reunir. Um, Avengers assemble. Um, so we are, we are reopening PC culture studios. Um, which has been shuttered since 2018. When did, yeah. when did we first do it? It, it, it was just in our, minute. it was just in our, um, our review episode, or, um, you know, our looking back episodes, our best of episodes. Yeah, goddamn it has been a minute. If it's if it would have been like right around the time I first started doing the podcast, yeah, like 17, 18, somewhere okay. in there. So we're reopening the studios. Uh, we got a we got a COVID bailout that we uh, fraudulently attain, obtained. Um, so we have the cash to reopen, and we're putting together our own genre crossing anthology series. Full, you know, short. I guess these are longer than short films, but they're going to be essentially uh, you know TV episodes. So let's say between you know an hour ninety minutes basically per episode, but eight episodes. We need eight different directors to fill up this anthology series roster. Um, so here's how we're going to do it. We're each going to pick four directors um, and just a couple of simple rules. No native English speaking directors. They obviously, they at this point, like who doesn't speak English besides right. fucking Americans, right? Like right. we can't speak it, but everyone else can. Um, but, you know, not their native language, um, which I did kind of bend the rules a little bit for one, but we'll get into that. Um, no repeat countries on your own list. Um, okay. I have a feeling we'll have some overlap for sure. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But you know, trying to make sure that we include some um, some different uh, some different countries and cultures here, and as we get through these, we're not going to go like full. These aren't like full blown movie pitches. We don't have that long to do eight fucking movie pitches, but we're going to name the director, the country they're from, and just kind of give a general idea for what their movie is going to be like for this series. You know, is it going to be you know is it going to be a horror film? Is it going to be live action, animated? Are we going to someone someone going to do a really long music film? I mean, I don't know. The premise is kind of wide open, but we don't need much more detail beyond that. Um, lastly, I, I the series is unnamed, and as the heads of the studio, we got to help. You know, we got to help the creators figure out what to call this thing. We got to we got to make sure this thing stands out on Netflix. So we're also going to name this uh, this show as well, or this uh, the series as well when we get done here. So um, without further ado, let's get to it, Chema. Let's just we'll just go back and forth. There's no particular order to this. We'll just go back and forth, pick whomever you want, and then we'll just uh, again we'll just get into the details I just threw up there. So, Chuba, who do you Sweet. who are you going to lead off here? Lead off with here. Oh, okay. So I am going to go with a name we've mentioned already on this podcast. It is Bong Joon Ho, and um, I have for my four directors. I have a a little bit of a theme uh, running through all my selections, and the theme is. Um, expanding on already introduced elements. Let me okay. put it to you that way, and you'll get an idea of what I'm about to say when I get into the first episode. So, Bong Joon-ho, 2019's Parasite Best Picture of the Year. I've seen it. 
I, I loved it. I was actually quite surprised by how good Parasite was. Um, it's actually very, very, very good. There is one awesome element in Parasite that I feel that they actually could have spent a lot more time on. And if they couldn't do it in the movie, it deserves another chance uh, to see some life in, the, in in our show. And it is the character of Gunsei, the, the guy who's living in the bunker in the mm-hmm. house. And I want to follow this character through some of his trials and tribulations in the bunker. Like, how did he end up there? We get a little bit more detail on that. We get to see like some of his quests inside the bunker, maybe his own like kind of mental deterioration from being like, you know, not around people all the time and everything. And uh, like, I would have it, it, whatever it would be, it would end right before he gets out in the movie. So we might actually like see some of the movie's footage or like right up until the movie's footage. But um, I feel that this would be a um, kind of like a horror, like maybe like even some psychological horror, mm-hmm. a lot of like following around one guy, um, minimal characters in the thing. I mean, there wouldn't be any need for more than four or five characters in this episode. And I think it would be a really cool way to get a little bit more insight into this very, very small, but yet vital piece of the movie Parasite. And I remember like people really kind of like struggling to explain exactly what Parasite is. And um, I am not going to lie. Like you could put, you could put it into a couple different categories. Like, yeah, it's black humor. I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a full blown horror film, but there is definitely some horror elements mm-hmm. in there. And I feel that by, um, you know, taking a dive into one of the other characters, we can maybe explore some of those genres a, a little bit farther. So I think that um, this is a great place to start. And from a director that is acclaimed as Zhang Ho, Zhang Ho is, this is, I, I feel that like this is something that would be right up his alley, something that would be really cool and something that people who are fans of the movie would flock to. I fully agree with you there. Um, and what a, so a very interesting sort of prequel, if you will. Um, yeah. Kind of, um, you know, a, you know, feature length episode of, of TV slash movie. Um, again, we're kind of, we've been blurring those lines now for years and the, the streaming services are just keep doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that um, Junho, in a very similar way to Jordan Peele, has, and re- I mean, honestly, before Jordan Peele um, even thought about directing, yeah. probably. Um, they both have created their own genre of, mm-hmm. of horror slash, you know, thriller. Um, the class conflict drama, mm-hmm. class conflict horror, class conflict, class conflict drama. Um, obviously, for Jordan Peele, it's very specific to the black experience in America. Um, in in uh, Bong Joon Ho's um, sort of version of this class conflict horror. It is about the the working class in Korea, but mm-hmm. but kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Like we're literally the circumstances are where the horror is derived from, and he's been doing yes. it for a very very long time in terms of Jun Ho, obviously Jordan Peele more recently. Um, so like I I think this is I think Parasite is more of the is definitely more of the thing that leans towards thriller slash drama, but it has mm-hmm. the horror. Of something like I don't know if you've ever seen uh, one of his first movies that really popped on the map, uh, Host, the Host. Oh, I have not. Very good movie, monster movie. Um, but it 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 is it is a it's a monster movie that's very it's not subtle about what's happening, um, mm-hmm. you know, in and the and the consequences of what's going on. Um, and then we, you know something like Snowpiercer is again 
not very subtle about like the class conflict and certainly that leans more towards action but there are definitely horror elements in it um right. i think snowpiercer wildly underrated movie but you can see the ideas that that june ho has been working at and he's been working at them for basically two decades now yeah oh god yeah and something like class conflict is going to be relevant till the end of fucking time dude there's going to be there there's never going to be this point in time where everybody's living prosper it's just not going to happen so this kind of subject matter is extremely relevant and he has this very kind of cool and unique take on this whole thing i mean if you look at parasite in general like the title of the movie and how pretty much everybody in some way shape or form is a parasite living off of somebody Someone else, else particularly yeah. the, the one family and stuff like that and then you just you kind of throw in some of this like black humor stuff like the the character smell and like even the stuff with the native american headdress like mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of richness in um you know in this like two and a half hours of movie time Oh, absolutely. In fact, I agree with you so much that leading off my choices is also Bong, Bong Joon-ho. Um, Hell yeah. So <laughs> no surprise there. And and, and the, the sort of, so I won't, we don't have to, we don't have to go over too much more. I'll just get into the sort of the episode that I have in mind, uh, the movie that I have in mind here. I, I really do sort of picture, again, class conflict drama really at the center of it. And I, I want him to go kind of back towards something like Snowpiercer. We have some like dystopian sci-fi um, I want it to be a little bit, you know, a little bit more toward, leading a little bit more towards sci-fi action while still getting that message about the class conflict across. I, I mm-hmm. kind of almost am picturing this visually like the most, you know, like Blade Runner 2049. I want something in, set in that sort of dystopian world that, yeah. Bong, that Bong Joon-ho could really sink his teeth into. Um, and certainly, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly like Blade Runner, but... You want to do some, you know, you want to do something with with machines and people, the replacement of people by machinery. That's up. For, that's up for debate. You want to mm-hmm. talk about the, you know, what does it mean to even uh, to even have consciousness? That's up for debate. There's so many ways you could go with a with a Bong Joon Ho sci fi movie. I just I'm up for it. Doesn't really fucking matter what how it turns out. I'm fucking up for it. Yeah, this guy is really fucking genius, dude. And I got to tell you, like something like set in Blade Runner 2049, like the mega city, I think this is something that's right up his alley. Like mm-hmm. there is so much to ex- explore in the ideas of uh, class conflict and everything like that in the mega city, because there's a pretty solid chance that you're either are a have or a have not. I'm not seeing, there's not like what they call a middle class in Blade Runner. At least they didn't get into it. You right, know? exactly. So like, so something like that, and you're right, like you throw in these like I, these themes and ideas of being replaced by machinery, the idea of, of consciousness, even like your own place in the world and stuff like that. These are all like universal type things that people wonder about and something that his, um, his caliber of filmmaking, I think, would have a fun time with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bong Joon-ho, not, I'm not even shocked that both of us are sort of leading off with that. He's... He is un- undoubtedly a top three director in the entire world right now. Undoubtedly, e- easily. Like the after if if he wasn't already in that, the parasite double win solidified him as yeah. that for sure. Yeah. All right. Who's your Who's your next selection? Okay, so my next selection is going to be Vladimir Johansson. Who's from Iceland? And he directed the uh, 2020 folk horror movie called Lamb. It's 20 or 21. Hmm. This is starring Numi Rapis and um, a, a 24 movie, you, correct? 
uh yeah there's yeah. no way that it's not <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah definitely so um what i really liked about this movie is um and and movies that are like this these like slow burn horror movies and stuff these like minimalist horror movies is that this is basically like a symphony like one misplaced shot or one I don't know, wrong line, like camera work. It just, everything kind of goes to hell. Like, especially because this movie isn't really all that scary in terms of like demons and ghouls and all that stuff. It's basically like a lot of situation, uh, the slow moving camera work, the use of music at the appropriate times and really like Mm -hmm. building up tension via the situation. So in the movie, um, long story short is a lamb is given birth. That is like half human, half lamb. And it's all about this couple raising their their new like hybrid child or whatever. And then there's this whole conflict about how they can't have a baby. This one, you know, kind of falls into their lap. There's this other um, conflict going on between the actual sheep that they raise who want this baby back. Now, at, I'm going to try to like I'm going to try to do this without like any real spoilers out there because this movie is still like on the newer side. But a creature makes an appearance at the end. So the whole thing is basically leading up to the reveal of this creature who kind of does a little bit of damage, but they, but the problem with the movie in general is that like, you don't really get a lot of time with the creature and there's just a little bit of buildup in the beginning. And you just basically see like a, a POV camera shot from an unknown source. And then in the end, it's supposed the POV shot is supposed to be this creature that shows up. I want to follow around the creature for the entire duration of this episode. Mm. And I feel that this is a good way to go because I love the twist in the end, but we just didn't get enough of it. And I'm not going to lie. Like there's a lot of questions in terms of motivations, all this other kind of stuff that, you know, I think could have been presented clearer. And I want to take this opportunity to use this episode of television to explore the motivations, the situation, Um, everything building up to the end of the movie lamb, but kind of like, not necessarily like a prequel, but kind of like one of those, like in the middle cute quills, like this would take place in the duration of the, the movie itself and somewhere in between the opening shot and the closing, we maybe follow this. They they call it the Ram man on Wikipedia. So we follow the Ram man, like what happened to him that he, lost the the lamb, the half human, half um, child lamb. Maybe there's some conflict with the other lambs, the same way that uh, Numi Rapiz and her husband have conflict. And I, no joke, like lamb in general is going to be one of these movies that um, you see it and it just goes down as another really great example of Icelandic and also folk horror. But I really dug it. I think that, um, the episode I'm pitching might fill in a little bit of gaps that we, that we got in the movie. And I think it's a good way to give this movie that like I did enjoy, but in the end it's, it's not like a groundbreaking definitive movie. It might end up just giving it a little bit more weight. If there was a uh, kind of like a flash sideways story um, Mm. explaining the motivation and origins of the titular creature in the movie. Gotcha, gotcha. I I still have not seen seen Lamb yet, so I'm kind of glad you're not, you know, going the full spoiler route because I do want to see it eventually. But um, it is really interesting. This it's it's interesting because like this is one of the few A24 horror movies, and, and I asked that because it didn't seem to have like persistent buzz. 
like a lot of their other efforts ha have. Right. Um, so it would be interesting to sort of give this like additional support and like a little bit like extra, you know, something extra to latch on to. Yeah, dude, I got to tell you, like this one definitely gets lost in the shuffle of the, of their movies and their overall slate and everything. Like it, it, it either came out like as we were in the pandemic or as we were, you know, coming out in quotes, like in the, the 2021 or whatever, I watched it on, um, I watched it on the flight home from um, Wheeler's wedding in 2021. So I think it was a 2020 movie. So like mm -hmm. something like this, I'm, I guarantee like was maybe supposed to get a, a theater release, maybe a little bit more press, but the pandemic just kind of squashed it. And being that it's on, you know, went to video demand, they need to make money. It's just never really going to get its, um, it's due. It's, it's justice. You know, it's never really going to get its full attention. So something to maybe call a little bit of attention back to the movie and to give this movie a, ch a chance to have a new life um, outside of the, the life that was sucked out of it from the pandemic. I, I'm all for, it, especially because I enjoyed it. Not just because I watched it on a plane. I have a tendency of really latching on to things that I watch on planes just because it's the only thing that I could focus on. But um, this one is one that um, I, I really dug. I thought it was really cool and unique. I think full core if done right is a really great and kind of different, interesting way to do horror, very minimalist and not all like, you know, blood and guts and gore and zombies and screams and everything, just all situational, all organic and just done very, very well. Mm -hmm. I, uh, yeah, I'm intrigued. I am very intrigued. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to check it. The, that lamb is definitely going on my more, you know, higher up on the thing, list of things I need to watch. Mm -hmm. um, but <clears throat> Like the choice, um, that would definitely be an interesting sort of. I think I, I, one common theme between you and I when we when we propose certain movies, like you and I are always like, yeah, but what about the bad guy? Like, what, yeah, like, yeah. I, and I think it's there's a lot of times. Sometimes it's just like for I, I know it's just like for you know like this could be interesting, but also sometimes I'm like, yeah, that actually would be really interesting. Like, there are yeah. certain bad guys that I definitely want to fucking live with for as long as possible. There are, they are more interesting than the heroes, dude. Like, that's, I really hate to say that. And I really, like, hate to shit on all future hero construction from here on out. But, like, the villains are just where it's at. Like, anytime I'm writing, I always have an easier time developing the antagonist. It's like, if I was an actor, I would never want to play the hero. Like, mm -hmm. unless there was a fat, a fat check. Involved. Well, yeah, there you <laughs> like, go. Yeah. Yeah, right. Back, but a like, lot of back end and fucking toy sales for your likeness. But, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd sell some fucking toys, dude. That's for sure. And, like, I'm telling you, like, it's it's just a more interesting thing. And, like, there are times where, because if you think about it, in the course of the movie, we always get more time with the hero. So like you mm. know, naturally walking into it, I know that like the, the character that I'm probably going to enjoy the most, I'm not going to be spending that as much time with. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Um, speaking of things that are interesting, um, my next choice here is coming out of France, um, the heir apparent, uh, and this is with all due respect, respect to Brandon Cronenberg, uh, David Cronenberg's uh, actual son, but the heir apparent to, to David Cronenberg's body horror, body horror throne, at least in my opinion, at this point, uh, is Julia DeCorno uh, out of France. Um, most recently, um, the Palme d'Or, which she directed the Palme d'Or winner, Titan, um, one that kind of surprised did not at least didn't get a didn't get a Best Picture nod, but um, it's 
it is it is a tough movie um, to sort of put up there in terms of like a best picture. But more notably for me um, is her 2016 effort Raw. That is a I don't know how, I don't know how to, it's not a slow burn, but it's a slow build. Like you okay. get um, you know you're not sitting with certain things for too long, but it's sort of like big event, you know, small event, bigger event, bigger event, bigger event. Um, so yeah. like, it, it's not like a slow burn, but like you're kind of, you are kind of waiting, but then when something happens, something happens. And in raw, something is this woman turning into a fucking raving cannibal. Um, and as it turns out, there are more raving cannibals in her life than she fucking realizes. And it starts off subtly, you know, she's a vegetarian who is like, um, is hazed, uh, when she's in veterinary school, like they force her to eat, they like throw, they, they, torture the the freshman class she has to eat like kid rabbit kidneys or something and Mm -hmm. it awakens this hunger inside of her that develops you know into eating fucking raw chicken at night and uh, you know maybe the most one of the most gruesome scenes it's gruesome because of how uncomfortable the whole scene is with one with one woman helping another woman um maintain her pubic hair um and then it devolves into her eating her finger and Ooh. it just keeps going from there. And DeCorno has this very interesting sort of, um, she talks about like her interest in this, in this body horror, like her parents are both doctors and they, you know, they're, I think one was a surgeon and another one was just like sort of more of a general practitioner. And like the way that they used to talk about the human body was like very disassociated. Like, Mm -hmm. these are just sort of like, these are our bodies. Guess what? They're fucking weird and we're just, you know, we can fucking break them down and put them back together, do all kinds of shit to them. And so she has this very sort of interesting, almost like a very precise, almost like medical kind of view of what the human body is and can do. Um, And that's very much at at play in Raw. It's very much at play in Titan. And it is, her shit is fucking gruesome. But like, not... Not in the not in a way that is sort of um, you know not again not to like blast Eli Roth and Hostel, but it's not gruesome just to be gruesome. It's gruesome because it, it in something like Raw it follows the evolution of someone becoming a cannibal. In mm-hmm. Titan it follows the the growth of someone who's becoming a fucking machine. So the the body horror very much like David Cronenberg makes perfect sense with the development of the character. Um, yeah. like, like it's, it's just, it's not out of place, but it is a completely unflinching look at like what the human body is sort of becoming. And I want, I want Julia DeCorno to give me a, her take on like a giallo, like an Italian giallo body horror movie, some kind of mm-hmm. criminal element, you know, almost kind of in, like in the back of my mind, I do have, um, a videodrome kind of in the back of my mind. There's like sort of a mystery to unfold. And I want that mystery to sort of take our main character. It's usually, in her case, it's almost always a woman. Could be a woman, could be a man, doesn't matter. But I want that main character to, in in the way that the story is, is, um, you know, changes, I want them to sort of physically change as well. No, I totally, dude, I hear you on all that. And I've just been reading up on some of these descriptions of her movies. And some of these sound pretty fucking intense, like Jesus Christ. And it's just even the, like what I've read about the plot of Raw in itself. I'm like, wow, my God, like you were lying about that. Like, yeah, they're going full throttle with the, the cannibalism and stuff there. Oh, the, and the, like, the ending of Raw is like, a. it's not like gruesome, but you're just sort of like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Like, yeah, <laughs> you get like a like a legitimate like oh Jesus Christ kind of moment at the end. 
Yeah, I got you, dude. Like, I am all for more body horror um, being introduced and being thrown around in the theaters and stuff like that. I, I for some reason, like, I, I feel that there's not that much of it in compared to other horror. Like, there may be body horror elements, but not just necessarily like a body horror movie. Mm-hmm. And um, ever since we, um, you know, did Videodrome and like I've kind of dabbled into more Cronenberg stuff here in my like in my more recent years. I've really enjoyed the shit out of this. Like, it, there's just something about body horror that I think just necessarily just speaks to us all. And um, whether it's a, 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 like a head growing out of your stomach or a uh, vagina growing into your stomach, whatever that mm-hmm. might be, and you're putting videotapes in it, like I, I think there is something about the disfigurement of our bodies that just it speaks to all of us. And I think that's one of the things that makes body horror so like just just so intriguing in comparison to like hey just a bunch of people getting chopped up yeah i i think what it's done well like cronenberg um de corno and actually and both cronenbergs um both his son does body horror and it's actually he's actually a pretty good director as well when it's done well and it makes sense within the you know it makes sense with the plot of the story then like it it, it, it you it's gross but it's not purposeless it's not just people growing fucking hands and like their bodies falling right. apart and shit, which is totally fine. It is that's totally fine. But when it when it complements the story and it sort of makes sense in the narrative, it definitely elevates it to a different place. It's a place where like you do think about, you know, like even even though it's not even though it not explicitly and this probably didn't ex- exactly exist in 1978-79, but in the way that Alien is a body horror movie, it's mm-hmm. just not as explicit, right? But the the body horror is you being raped. And you being impregnated against your will, and that fucking thing destroying you, like yeah. it is a body horror movie just in different in a different way. And I think that when when we when you get to the fundamental nature of what body horror is, if it goes along with a good story and the destruction or muta- you know mutation mutilation of your own body, the only thing that you have, you know, basically the only thing in your life that you have complete control over, that's like where the horror comes from, right? I mean, yeah. visually visually sure but like the idea that you are no longer in control of the only thing that you had control of previously that's where the horror comes from no you got that right yeah the the thought of it is actually pretty fucking terrifying and i can understand how a lot of women in this country might be terrified as well i i have a very strong feeling that this the the abortion horror genre is coming significantly faster than a lot of other horror genres yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I I remember when we were talking about um like, you know, certain societal fears and maybe the idea of like this past presidency kind of working its way into horror and everything. I got to say that um after seeing several examples of people trying to emulate the the I guess our, even still our current political climate on television now, I would much rather have an abortion body horror movement than, oh my God, so-and-so is, is Trump. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there's, I feel there's way, way more room for creativity with, um, especially coming from female voices too, ab- about body horror or even just horror in general 
than we're ever going to get where it's just like, God, can you believe this mad King? Like everybody sucks up to him. And like, Mm -hmm. man, like the deep won't tell Homelander he's wrong. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, I feel we've kind of done as much as we possibly can with the last administration. And while we need to learn from it and not forget about it, I just don't want to see it in entertainment. Agreed. Agreed. And quick prediction here, the abortion body horror subgenre that is definitely going to be taking shape soon it's not going to be explicitly about abortion. It'll be about pregnancy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, you bet. Because once you get into where it is about abortion, then you're basically just giving the right everything they could ask for. <laughs> exactly. It's it's about, it's, a, it's going to be about the wrong people impregnating you. It's going to be about what you're impregnated with. Um, how, mm-hmm. you know, how you're impre- – that's where the horror is going to come from, not – explicitly from the abortion so that the the abortion sub horror the abortion body horror subgenre that i'm predicting now will in fact be about pregnancy just exactly yeah we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and check in on that one later yeah give it about uh, two years or so and uh yeah we're going to be seeing more mm. of that that's for sure <laughs> uh who's your next choice here Okay, my next choice is a familiar name. Um, you and i've seen a bunch of his work it's guillermo del toro there you go uh, from mexico i um I want to focus on one specific project of Guillermo del Toro's that I have the biggest love-hate relationship in the world with, and that is The Strain, the show that he produced on FX and went for four seasons. Mm -hmm. Started off as an awesome, incredible show. I absolutely fucking loved it. Then by about like season three, we're just like, man, we haven't killed this fucking guy already. Like It kind of became one of those, and um, just a lot of like – repeat scenarios over and over again where it's just like man like this guy is going to escape again and then after this he'll escape seven more times so um aside from some of the show's flaws as it as it got on because i the, the first season is damn near perfect in my mind it's so fucking good in season three del toro introduces a character called the silver angel and he introduces this character via an old black and white video cassette tape that one of the other characters is watching and the silver angel is a um, lucha libre like a mexican wrestler who fights vampires and he is played by joaquin cosio who um is the general in the most recent suicide squad he's the general of corto maltese um, he's he oh, does right. get one of the starro fishes on him he's he's got the most lines out of Correct. any of the corto maltese military yep. people yep. and um <clears throat> so I love that guy. The, the guy's great. Like I said, I just, any show that I have like a strong connection to, I usually just love all of the characters, even the mm-hmm. side ones. And he's one of these ones that even in the strain, it was awesome. But there was just this part that like the silver angel thing that I, I just, I feel they could have done a little bit more with. And what I want to do in this episode that Guillermo del Toro will direct, I want to do an animated Sort of like the wrestler meets John Carpenter's vampires, which for some reason I did. I love this already. I watched vampires last week and um, it's still on Netflix. I got to say, I actually kind of liked it. (laughs) Um, Right. It's it's a movie that you and I both could make, not because of John Carpenter made a bad movie. John Carpenter had his budget and legs cut out from underneath him. Yeah, definitely. And there's a, there's really actually like a lot to get excited about with that mm-hmm. movie. Um, once again, it 
just makes me wonder what the hell happened to James Woods. And like, we're just a little bit of stuff either way, like this, you know, things going in which direction, whether it be admitting stuff or omitting stuff or adding stuff, vampires could have been a really good movie. Mm -hmm. So what happens in this, um, like what I'm calling is silver crosses because the silver angels choice weapon is these like brass knuckles that are made of silver, brass knuckles made of silver that um, instead of being that like rigid knuckly shape, they're these big crosses mm-hmm. and he fights vampires that way. So it, it's, it's just going to be a simple story of like a, um, you know, an out of work, maybe like, cause in the, the story, the silver angel gets hurt and he gets like thrown into depression and stuff and he has to give up fighting. It's going to be very similar. He, you know, gets hurt. He's got to give up fighting. He's walking around trying to find work. He stumbles onto like a, it's just like a, a small Mexican town, you know, where he gets a, a shitty job as being a heel in a local wrestling show. And he basically saves the town from the vampires that are holding it hostage at night. And uh, it's going to be nothing like, you know, we're not going too deep here. It's just going to be an all out um, man versus vampire story done by Guillermo del Toro in animation and there's lucha libre in mass and you can't beat it i i love this this sounds fucking fun as shit um and you know what guillermo Guillermo del toro would be like one of the perfect people to sort of do something a little bit more experimental um not not afraid to do animation not afraid to do anything i think this would just be fun as fuck um oh yeah this would be fun as fuck this would be fucking awesome Guillermo would totally do it. Like he even he would like after whatever A-list project he's directing that I'm sure is going to get a whole bunch of Oscar nominations. I think you'd see him taking two months and just working on something like this. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, love it. Anytime we get to, to give Guillermo a little bit of props. I love it. He's again, maybe I, I don't, how do I say this? Maybe the most, maybe the director with one of the most unique visions for everything he does. Like mm-hmm. it is, you know, it is unmistakable that you're watching a Guillermo del Toro movie. And it is very obvious when another horror movie or, you know, kind of fantasy type movie is aiming for something that he does because it just is not what he does. It just never right. get, they never get there. Yeah. No one is going to make the shape of water, but him, like I haven't seen nightmare alley yet, but I, I've heard it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Pacific rim was fucking awesome. The first yep. one is absolutely awesome. So like this, he really can do no wrong. And I'm actually mad that he didn't do uh, justice league dark. Cause I know that would have been fucking would have been great. Would have been great. All right. So this is, I'm going to get to my, my kind of cheat. Um, but I think it still counts because her first feature was, entirely in farsi um iranian um okay. but I'm, I'm going with uh anna lily uh, uh amirpour um she's british but was but again she's iranian her family's iranian she's mm-hmm. british but was raised in southern california uh okay. like bakersfield actually um and her first movie uh, a girl oh gosh is it a girl walks home alone it's got a long fucking title i'm gonna look it up right now but um everyone a girl walks home alone at night thank you very much it's a vampire movie and Mm -hmm. it's very it's um it's a very kind of genre um a genre sort of defying vampire movie it is definitely it's black and white and it is definitely steeped in iranian movie visualization like it's supposed to be iran there's um you know there's undoubted there's like these very, there's a very Persian look to it. That's the only way I can kind of describe it. 
but mm-hmm. it's also a noir movie. And yeah. again, it's it's also a Western movie. Um, it's also, again, a vampire movie. And it's kind of very hipstery, um, as you would <laughs> expect from someone, you know, a millennial in their 30s that grew up essentially in Southern California. Um, yeah. It crosses a lot of genres, but it's a very interesting sort of, it's a very interesting sort of first attempt at a movie. Not attempt, it's a really good, it's a very good movie. Um, but it is a very interesting sort of first draft, if you will, because her next movie, uh, The Bad Batch with um, Keanu Reeves and like Suki Waterhouse, um, I can't remember who else is in that one, is it's it, that movie is like a Roger Corman or Russ Meyer movie. Um, straight up, straight up. So she definitely is sort of, um, this is like, I, I, I guess, you know, this is like your, your modern day sort of hipster B-movie director. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she's, you know, stuff that is definitely going to be outside the mainstream, kind of, you know, playing with playing with certain tropes and stuff. And I, I really would like to see her version of like a a Benson and Moorhead style horror movie um, mm-hmm. that sort of I, I guess there's no other way to describe it other than a hipsty inter, hipster indie horror movie. I just want her sort of, um, you know, her sort of, uh, you know, fingerprints. In like kind of like in the middle, I want this to be sort of like a a break from everything else that's going on to look at something that's just like a little bit different. Again, like when we did when we did Benson and Moorhead, a very different look at like what low budget horror can be. I want um, uh, Anna Lily Amirpour's version of this. Yeah, I have seen a little bit of the Bad Batch. I think this movie was on Netflix for a little bit, of, and um, I remember because this is the movie where Jim Carrey's the homeless guy, yes. and like he's barely any dialogue or anything like that in the movie. And this looked like one of the trailers that would have aired in between Grindhouse and Planet Terror. Like I was like, wow, this is fucking awesome. Yep. I don't remember finishing the movie. I think it was one of those like, oh, I'm going to watch this movie loaded. And then like about 20 minutes into it, I'm like, yeah, I can watch movies loaded that I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. It's just my, my own curse. Uh, but um, I remember really, really enjoying the shit out of like the style and everything and just even the overall concept. I've seen the the poster for this um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, but I have not seen the movie. And I think the poster is worth the price of admission. It's a great poster. It's, it's a cr- great poster haunted like haunted nun kind of image almost and uh i am actually going to put i'm going to put all these down on uh, some lists to see but this was actually like now knowing that she's responsible for this bad batch um movie i am definitely going to make a jump to um check out this girl walks home at night yeah it's real interesting it's it's again like it's all um it's the reason why i'm including her again she speaks english just fine um she also speaks farsi but um you know, the whole movie is in Farsi. The actors are all Iranian, um, with a couple of exceptions. Um, you know, it's it's supposed to be set in um, in Iran, although you can definitely tell it's Bakersfield. But don't, yeah. you know, don't worry about that part about it. Um, right. But, you know, like this is sort of an homage to... It's very clear. It's an homage to her heritage and also the sort of B-movies that she grew up watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's funny. I just was watching on the Wikipedia page for this movie. It says it was shot in Taft, California, which is up near near Bakersfield in Kern County. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, how in the absolute fuck did William Howard Taft manage to get a town named after him in California? It is it is just insane to me because like in Cincinnati, where the Taft family is from, like 
they own that fucking town even still to today like the law firm all the the different things that the family has done but i'm just like how did that mustachioed man who died in a bathtub get a town named after him in california it's just beyond me i mean i guess uh i guess we pay enough money for things yeah, that's got to be what it is. That clearly has to be the Taft family just like, we need to make our name on the West Coast. And <laughs> um, and then they decided to do it. But, yeah, I mean, once you get up, like, basically, like, once you get out of Los Angeles, like, pretty much anything could be made up to look like anywhere in California, depending on if you want mountains in the background. Or right, not. right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Who is your uh, your last choice here? Okay, my last choice, um, which I actually feel is the most obscure of the four, is a director named Hiro Marai, M-U-R-A-I. He is a director of from Japan, is born in Tokyo. Um, he has directed videos for Earl Sweatshirt, Childish Gambino. He did oh, okay. the This Is America video. He has also directed 20, 20 of the 41 listed episodes um, of Atlanta on FX, even though they have not shot all 41. It just this, basically the, when you go to the page, it just says there's 41 episodes. So he's yeah. responsible for just about half of them. And he's done um, the, the classic episodes of Teddy Perkins, um, the, the Woods episode, which is fucking fantastic. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he's directed just about every episode per season, with the exception of one or two. And for all I know, he's directed everything in the last season. They just haven't put it on IMDb yet. And, um, so my thoughts on Atlanta are they range depending on the episode. Let me put it to you that way. The show in general borders on absolute fucking genius to did I really just watch 30 minutes of that sometimes? Like some of their mm. more abs- abstract concepts don't land as, as hard with me. And I find myself uh, doing a lot of research after the fact watching it where I kind of get more appreciation based on the research than the actual like content of the show and stuff. But the one thing that I will say that aside from the writing staff, this guy makes the show like these episodes and the way that they are directed, the the pacing of everything, how it's sometimes even slow burn on humor with horror elements into it. It makes the show what I will say, hands down, it's a top three show on television right now. Like even, even as it's winding down, I will gladly say that Atlanta is a top three show, even out of the, maybe the last like five, hmm. 10 years or so. It's just absolutely fantastic. And this guy is responsible for a lot of these episodes where I do feel Atlanta really shines compared to most um, television shows is that anytime the show is going to be, Hey, this character is in location a and they need to get to location B, whatever is going to happen in the middle is going to be fucking amazing. And that's when the show is, that's when the show really, really, really hits its stride for some reason. Just put somebody on an adventure and let's see what happens to them. So with, um, with this particular director, with Maro, I am just going to throw a simple, very simple situation where I want a story set in Tokyo where a character has to go from point A to point B. I'm thinking something where vending machines have to be involved just because of Japanese culture and vending machines. And when I go to Japan, I'm going to be eating nothing but food from vending machines. So um, 
I, I just want something simple like that. I don't have a lot of detail in it because God only knows the best part of these Atlanta episodes or the unsuspecting things that happen that just kind of take you out of left field. You're just like, holy shit, is that Liam Neeson just like in an Atlanta episode? And yes, it is. So um, I feel that um, with Morrow's style and th- just the way that he could tell a story and particularly just the idea of somebody going from point A to point B, I think he would be able to deliver a very, very solid episode. And if they even want to have a cameo from one of the Atlanta characters make an appearance in this, I'm all for it. Whether it's Lakeith or one of the kind of random European offshoots that we met in this last season, I would be all for um, somebody making an appearance and, and on the show. Love the choice. That is definitely the most obscure that we're going to... We're, actually, I might have the most obscure one, but um, but certainly was not expecting you to pop out a TV director, but holy garbage, does he have a huge um, cache of music videos. He's directed some episodes of TV from other shows that I've liked. Um, the, guy has, the guy clearly is in demand um, if he is sort of um, working across this, you know, these many types of, uh, of films and music videos and stuff. And... I, you know, I, I still have not started in started on Atlanta yet, but I have a feeling that's going to be one of my, um, I like I know I've mentioned before, like I'll have stuff that I watch where I just like while I'm working, I watch it in the background, and yeah, st- like like I watched all of Stargate Atlantis that way because you mm-hmm. can just go ahead and not pay attention to that and not fucking miss anything, <laughs> right? Um, right. It, it'll it'll let you know when to pay attention basically, um, so. But then, but then I do like digging into a show like Lost, where I I am I like set a you know I set out like an hour two hours every night to like watch to actually sit there watch as if it was a new show or whatever. Atlanta mm-hmm. is going to be one of those shows for me where it's like okay, yeah. sitting down. It's, it's Thursday night. It's Friday night. Whatever. I'm going to watch two episodes tonight. I'm going to sit and give this all of my attention. Yeah, that is the way to watch the show and that is really the only way to kind of absorb how brilliant it is because there's things in there that are genius that you don't get the first time around that you maybe do have to find your, have to look up later or find yourself looking up later. And once you, once you really fall into the show and it starts to become more than just about Donald Glover um, helping Paperboy with his music career, like mm-hmm. particularly in seasons two and three, when they really open it up, it becomes something very, very, very special. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's a really good choice. I'm glad, I'm glad that you did go with someone like sort of off the map. Um, yeah. I had to at least get one person in there and I, I, I did it because like, I'll be honest with you, like, I didn't want to throw Chloe Zhao or Kathy Yen in there. Mm -hmm. I really struggled to find a a female um, director that I had seen and was familiar with. So if I can't find a a female persona to throw into this list, I'm going to throw a very, very obscure reference in there. (laughs) Like it. I like it. Um, I I do have an obscure one, but it was sort of like a backup in case we had overlap. And Mm -hmm. I I wasn't going to not include Bong Joon-ho. And right. like, it, there's just no fucking way. Um, so we'll get to the, we'll get to my sort of obscure one. Um, but I'll go, I'll go with one that is, we have definitely heard, heard of, talked about and watched stuff about, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, um, oh, yeah. out of Denmark. This is going to be like our most straightforward, um, of the episodes. I want to, so are you familiar with his movie, the Pusher series from prior to when he broke with, um, uh, you know, drive or whatever? Okay, I I just watched Bronson for the first time two weeks ago. Um, yeah, let me see here. I 
I don't think I have. I think Bronson might be the earliest one that I have seen. And I've seen Drive. I've seen uh, the, the the other one that wasn't as good with Ryan Gosling that followed it. Um, I've seen Neon Demon, mm-hmm. a couple episodes of um, You're Too Too Old to Die Young. Right. Um, it's it's a it's a director that I enjoy the stuff that I see. Um, I just like the television show kind of got me. I just, I didn't expect him to make the move to TV and for as beautiful as it looked, it just didn't hit me the way that, especially the way that Bronson did because Tom Hardy's performance in Bronson is nothing shy of legendary. Yeah, I know. It's it's incredible. I mean, it puts, that puts both of them on the map essentially outside of England and outside of um, uh, Denmark, obviously. Um, Yeah. But this is going to be my most straightforward one. I want I want Refn to go back to his original sort of roots with the Pusher film series, um, cops versus organized crime, um, mm-hmm. dudes getting fucking shot to death. I mean, it is it's a very straightforward um, movie uh, Pusher series. It's just Pusher one, two, and three. It is much more straightforward than like the fucking Neon Demon or Drive. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but it is. It is sort of if, if these are I could say if these are movies I ha- of his I haven't seen I was doing some YouTube YouTubing of them, um, boy that that refin that refin violence the way it's stylized is all over this fucking all over these fucking movies though, and mm-hmm. I want I want to see you know almost twenty five years after the first per- uh, twenty six years after the first first pusher movie I want to see how he would update that sort of um, you know that sort of more basic crime story that, that he started off with how much more violent would get how the violence would change how the characters would change um it, it's it's one of those things it, it, there's there's a lot of directors i would love to i would love to see them go back and almost redo some of their early movies not because they're bad because i'm curious as to what they would look like with like a more full budget and mm-hmm. also if they if, as they have matured as filmmakers this is one of those things i want to see i want to see uh, Refn now versus Refn in 1990. Do Refn in 1996. Oh fuck yeah! That his career and his style is so interesting and so unique and stylized that um, it's almost like if we would have had Christopher Nolan go back and make Following. I'm pretty sure Following might be like the exact same movie with like better cameras and maybe 20 additional minutes. Who knows? Maybe a nuclear bomb being dropped somewhere. Right. But like, but like, I could see his stuff not being drastically different but like you could tell that there's just more money and experience that have gone mm-hmm. into it and, that, and everything right i could still see it being like a lot of the same shots and like the same use of colors all that kind of stuff but um just just a little bit more newer and advanced looking yeah just just an update and and and, and you know what like as as you know like i said i really enjoy reference stuff but I, I do sort of think that Neon Demon is very interesting. I kind of like the more simple storylines that he gets to tackle. That's to, mm-hmm. to me. I'm like, dude, just just go straightforward. Like Drive is pretty straightforward, right? Like I mean, there's yeah, there's not really like this fucking weirdo um, is going to protect this this you know woman and her child. That's essentially what Drive is. I yeah. I don't need super in, 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 intricate storylines from this guy. Do good violence. Do something kind of cool. Make it look real stylized. Pop in a cool song. We're good. Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, Neon Demon is definitely the weirder of all of his stuff. That is for sure. And even as I think about it, because I, I watched the movie within the last like within the last three years, um, as I even think about it, I'm just like, wow, yeah, that one is really really different from some of his other stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not bad. It's just 
it is very different. Um, whereas a, a, a film like Pusher is much closer to um, what we get, you know, to drive Nicholas uh, Winding Refn. So, um, oh, real quickly here, this was my this was my bonus one in case we had like a little in case we had overlap. Um, it's actually someone um, that does a movie that we talked about that we talked about last year during the short film series, Alberto Mielgo, who mm-hmm. directed The Witness, the the um, Love, Death, and Robot short that you talked about uh, yeah. last oh, year, yeah. which is really good. So I made I made the comment that there was like clearly some rotoscoping to you know to the um, you know to to this style of animation. There is not any rotoscoping to that style of animation. That is a new animation technology that Mielgo and the company he works for are sort of pioneering. And have you seen the most recent season of Love, Death, and Robots? Are you talking about the last episode? Jabaro? Yeah. Like that, um, is that, is that what you're talking about? The yes. Jabaro episode? He did that one? Yes. That, that's the, as far as like newer, I guess in terms of groundbreaking animation, that is pretty fucking groundbreaking and new as far as I'm concerned. Cause the details on that were mm-hmm. disgusting. Like they it's were fucking amazing. Yeah. It's unbelievable that that is animation. And there's definitely some like, you know, there's definitely some physical performance, like the, the, the siren that's dancing in the river. Um, like that is a, that is a, you know, that is like a, you know, you'd see someone with like all the fucking ping pong balls and shit on them. Like, yeah, there's obviously physical performance in it. But for the for, but the vast majority of that is all fucking animated with a very particular animation style that Mielgo and I can't remember the like the company that he's essentially like one of the producers for and animators for. But like this is sort of probably propri- proprietary technology isn't the exact way to put it, but I can't think of anything else. Like no one else is animating this way, but he is, but him. Um, so I want to see something. I want to see whatever that you know, whatever it is. I want to see that technology being used in a more full-length feature, because I think that would be fucking incredible. The things that you could do with it are probably, um, you know, you could probably do some really interesting stuff, and certainly his tastes are, the two movies are very different, um, obviously, but I, I could see that being being applied to something like much more like general sci-fi, or um, I would be more interested in seeing something like the, the, the Jabaro being an interpretation of like the Siren, I would kind of want to see like his interpretation of some other like figure from mythology. Yeah. Oh, of course. Definitely. If, if it looks as cool as the Jabaro, I mean, it's, that's going to get attention. You know what I'm saying? And people will, people will go see it because it is a new form of animation. It's, it's almost like when avatar came out and I know that avatar has Cameron's name attached to it, but like mm-hmm. these really cool kind of new ways of doing special effects and stuff. Like that's what, got a lot of people into the theater that's yep. definitely what everybody was talking about afterwards because no one was talking about how great the story was of avatar so like <laughs> fern gully, you mean fern gully yeah fern gully that's right yeah which is pocahontas fern, amongst other fern things Gully's fucking awesome i loved fern gully growing up <laughs> um, but like you know like but this jabaro and like that's st- that style of animation like once once the word gets out that it's kind of like a new cool style of animation like it's it'll pull people to the theater a lot better than a scanner darkly would have. Cause like I, I get like a scanner darkly being kind of at least like something I hadn't seen in terms of like animation before, mm-hmm. but that was a little difficult on the eyes. This Jabaro looks just like a, a regular, like it looks like it could have been humans doing it. Yeah. It, it just, it has, it has the, the touches of a, a term that we've used before. It has those hyper real touches that mm-hmm. let you know that it's animation, but 
boy, it, it is it, the details on on especially obviously on the on the siren. The details are unreal, <laughs> like yeah, unreal. I remember when that image came up during like you know when you see Netflix like a, the the title screen yeah. plays different things. That that was the first thing that came up, and I was just like. Wow! Look, I, on our huge TV in HD, I was just like, "God fucking damn it!" Yeah, pretty, very impressive. So there, there's your bonus one, Alberto Mielgo from Spain. Um, by the way, randomly, do you know who makes a very fun but also now in hindsight scary guest appearance in the middle of a scanner darkly? Uh, who is that? Keanu's the star, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who is the guest appearance? Alex Jones. Oh my God! Oh, he's he's God. been friends with. Um, um, yeah for uh, in austin for decades i mean Ugh. they're not friends now obviously but um this was like before alex jones he was you know always a conspiracy theorist and that, that kind of bullshit like his his roots go back to like uh coast to coast am with art bell like that kind of that kind of bullshit um yeah. which is pretty hard like that kind of bullshit's pretty harmless there's aliens there's bunkers there's the government's doing weird stuff like okay whatever um right. and like Linklater was all always very intrigued by him, but did note that like post once the year two thousand hits, essentially he changes quite a bit. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It's amazing what like once the internet and there's so many people out there doing the similar stuff. What you have to say to get attention, including the the murders of a bunch of children in a school where it was all yep. staged. Yep. Exactly. Oh, uh, so there you go. Yeah. Alex Jones makes it. It's actually. It's kind of funny, but like when you think about it, it's like, oh, yep, there's uh, there's like thirty year old Alex Jones going for it. Very bizarre. Fucking Texas, man. They know they all know each other. Yep. All yeah. right. So, Chema, what are we going to call this series? Like, I, I, I really, I'm not going to lie to you. I kind of struggle with this, and I always feel like I'm a little bit, I'm pretty good at naming things. But I, I, I want to hear what you would like to, you would like to name this series. Okay, so my two names, um, God, yeah, I, I kind of suck at this too. I have, um, as the world watches, because I know that's like a phrase, like okay. as the world watches, and since it's like, a, you know, people all over the world, that kind of thing. My other name is Eight Others. And like, Ooh. I just, I kept that because of my theme of the other characters that, you know, expanded upon stories and stuff like that. So I just thought Eight Others was, was appropriate. I, I, I actually like that a lot. It, it works. Eight, you know, it works in conjunction with yours and also works in sort of a way that, um, I, I don't know, others is always like a nice sort of way to signal to someone that like there's something different about to happen. Yeah, right. Exactly. It could definitely be applicable to yours too because it's just like, you know, these are other projects that these people mm-hmm. did. So the, the other term being so general, you know, you can throw around, um, you can assign some different like uh, definitions to it. Yeah, exactly. I like that a lot. Ooh, I think that, well, that actually might end up being the winner. Um, um, <laughs> so first, first one that was like a little more, a little bit more general was the contractors. You know, we're, okay. we're, we're, con- we're bringing yeah. in these contractors to go ahead and do, do work for us. Basically kind of one of those things that's overly simple in terms of title. Mm-hmm. Right. Probably not. The other one uh, that I went, that I was thinking about was the sandbox, um, and in terms of uh, it, that sandbox is a term that gets used in gaming a lot as sort of the as sort of the world within as the player that you can kind of do anything that you want to. So the sandbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know something like I actually like for some stupid reason like I kind of dig them both. The contractors is just 
it's one of those things that's like so the term contractor just associated with like construction and other stuff where it's you know an, an avant-garde kind of anthology series like mm-hmm. it's just such a juxtaposition there of of the name and everything and like the sandboxes that's also not too bad either like especially because there's like you know a gaming there's a different kind of meaning than just where kids right. play in the sand yeah right <laughs> right exactly i i'm not gonna lie though i think um if i had to vote i'd vote for eight others Let's fucking do it up then. Eight and then, others from PC Culture Studios. There you go. And then and then every season, eight new directors. Like you know, like then it becomes yeah. you know ex- in the way that you know exactly what Love, Death, and Robots is going to be about. You right. at least have the general idea of what eight others is going to be about. Yeah, that's there's not much uh, lying in the term in the title of Love, Death, and Robots. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, quick recap here. You want to go through yours? Yes, you bet. It is Bong Joon Ho. It is Guillermo del Toro. Vladimir Johansson and Hiro Murray. Murray. Love it. Love it. Also had Bong Joon-ho, um, Julia DeCorno, Anna Lily Amirpour, Nicholas Winding Ruffin, and then as a bonus, um, Alberto Mielgo um, to give one difference, you know, to make sure I had four different ones there. Um, and I like, I like eight others. I think that's what we're going with. Um, nice. So just like a little wrap up here. Um, Cheva, you're, you're fluent in Japanese now. What does that say? <laughs> What does uh, what say? The on the outline, the last section. Okay, that uh, I actually have no fucking clue what the hell that that says, but um, <laughs> for some reason, uh, for some reason, I feel like I have seen this word before, but not in Duolingo. I'm not gonna lie, I, f- I forgot to put the actual translation down, so I'm looking up right now. <laughs> uh, I I remember, I think it just means like last looks or like last last chance. Um, do, 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 do. Oh boy, everyone loves. What? Oh, come on, translate. Pop up here. Everyone loves listening to people type. Oh, yeah. It is. Uh... Hold on. <laughs> yeah, well, I. I'm getting like a the first thing that comes up is Final Fantasy when I do that. Yeah, that's what I got too, and that doesn't make any sense. I think I think it just I think it's just like last thoughts or final thoughts or some last looks. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, but like, as as we know, when you translate, you know the words words hold different meanings uh, when you begin translating them. So, um, right. Anyway, let's finish this out. Just a couple of things we should be on the lookout for in terms of you know, movies, director, actor, whatever that, um, you know, from different countries that we should be on the lookout for. If we happen to see their name pop up in something, you should probably check out. All right. So let me give off a couple names here. I got three of them, uh, four names, sorry. Um, two of them are from the same thing. And that is, we're going to revisit squid game again, that telling you that, um, that name coming up, um, a lot in the world today. And this is a Lee Jung Jae and, Ho Young Jung, the um, basically the protagonist, and then the uh, female character who, spoiler alert, does not make it to the end. Um, <clears throat> these clearly, um, Lee Jung Jae, he's been on, he's been interviewed by people and stuff. He, this is a making of a really big star. Um, we'll see exactly what Squid Game uh, season two brings to the table, but um, 
if it is as big of a crossover hit as the first Squid Game was, we are going to be seeing a lot more of these two popping up in either American productions or even in other Korean and Asian uh, productions. Um, I have to throw in there Yorgos Lathamos. Um, it's that guy's good, man. He's he's really fucking good. Um, Oh, well, I have not seen The Favorite. I am definitely a fan of The Lobster. Um, and even like The Killing of a Sacred Deer is not too bad, a little different than what I thought it was going to be, but it's definitely not bad. Um, and he's from Greece. Then the last person that I will name, which I can't believe that this this term I'm going to dive into has been something that has even followed me even into my 30s. Um, there's this director named Thomas Vinterberg. He's from Denmark. He's the guy who directed Another Round, which is that movie with Mads Mikkelsen that came out where he's you know like basically drunk through the whole fucking thing. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I will tell you, this is another one of my like, oh, hey, this movie's about alcohol. Maybe I should watch this in a drunken state. Made it through about 20 minutes of it. And I will tell you that um, this guy made alcohol look absolutely lovely. Like not necessarily the, you know, like when you see old school and you see some of these movies, people drinking beer, getting fucked up, having a good time. This movie just somehow seemed to make alcohol look absolutely beautiful. Beer, wine, everything. Mm. And turns out that Thomas Vinterberg is actually okay. So there's this movement in Danish film called dog me 95. It's a filmmaking movement that started in 1995 with, um, believe it or not, Lars von Trier and this mm. is Thomas Vinterberg. And there's something out there called the dog me 95 manifesto and the vows of chastity, which are just these rules to create films based on traditional values of story, acting and theme and excluding the use of elaborate special effects or technology. And so like I was made aware of this when I was at CSU in film school and we actually watched a, a Danish movie that was supposedly like this dog me 95, like to the T, but it's this really what I basically what is like, there, there's goals and rules. There's 10 different rules listed on Wikipedia. I'm not going to get into them, all of them specifically, but just as here's number one, shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must be brought in. If in a particular prop is necessary for the story, a location must be chosen where this prop is to be found. So there's these like strict rules about filmmaking that this, um, this movement in Danish film try to adhere to and turns out this Thomas Vinterberg guy along with Lars von Trier are basically like the founders of this movement. Mm. And, um, I do, I will at some point in time finish another round. Um, definitely in a, a, a time where I'm able to read subtitles and not be loaded and they all run together. But, um, there's just this thing with like this movement of Danish film. I've always just, I'm just kind of surprised that like it keeps popping up because I was going, like I was debating on talking about Lars von Trier first, but then I, I kind of steered away from it. And then when I was looking up, you know, people to talk about in this movie and I was, I just clicked on this guy and it's like, Oh, here, dog me 95 again. Like this, it just keeps following me around and popping up in places where I should expect it. But for some reason I don't expect it. So it's kind of like an interesting surprise every time I um, see this term. That's very interesting. Um, that's very interesting. Was was rule number eleven make it sad as fuck? Uh, let me see. It is <laughs> no, it's not. There's only ten. That's um, that's just in Lars von Trier's version of these of yeah. these rules. Uh, he has oh, eleven and twelve. Sad as fuck, and also even sadder if possible. Yeah, sad, graphic, and three hours plus in the duration. Yeah. Actually, what's really interesting is the 10th rule is the director must not be credited. So, like, 
Yeah, I could see Lars von Trier having a problem with that because I oh, know he's a man who loves putting his name on stuff. <laughs> yes, he does. Very large, usually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh boy, that's, that's that's interesting though, and that's that's one of those things that like I would. I, I have a feeling we'll we'll find time to talk about stuff like that. But if we had a film podcast, I would love to do a whole episode on like those kind of film movements that pop up in places. Um, oh yeah, it, it's. Although it's it's kind of strange because like I, when I think of Denmark, I don't think of movies that like have anything but on location shooting. Pro- you know what I mean? Like that mm-hmm. just seems like they're describing every movie from Denmark. Right. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That's exactly right. Like it seriously does. Like it seriously sounds like every Danish movie. And it's also crazy because when I hear Denmark, I the last thing I think of is movies. Actually, it's either uh, it's, it's either chewing tobacco, snow, or blonde people. That's kind of like the first thing that comes to my mind. <laughs> oh, also in that Rule Twelve, um, Mads Mikkelsen has to be in your movie. So, like <laughs> I swear to God, when I was just doing this, like you know, I know Mads Mikkelsen has been in a ton of movies. He is like in every fucking in the nineties. If a movie was made in Denmark, he was in it. Oh yeah, I, he Definitely. was in all of them. Yep. Oh yeah, he's even in a Reffins, uh, the one movie where he's like surviving in the snow and stuff like that. Yep. Yep. I, 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 it, it's bizarre, but anyway, he, like you were legally obligated to put Mads Mikkelsen in a movie, um, <laughs> which is fine. He's great. I like him. Yeah, I'm gonna um, find a way to edit Wikipedia so I can put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good, excellent selections. Um, I will start with um, a movie here that I have not seen, but like it kept coming up when I was doing, when I was trying to find something Mexican besides Guillermo del Toro. Um, this kept coming up as, and like it frequently listed as like one of del Toro's favorites. It's called Tigers Are Not Afraid um, mm-hmm. by Isa Lopez. And it's sort of this um, interesting blend of like, uh, of fantasy and crime. And, not not like um um whatchamacallit? The the fucking Will Smith movie. Oh uh Bright. Bright. Not like Bright, but like That's more good. like more like um like child fantasy stories. But like it's it's not like fantastic you know, there isn't like fucking magic and shit. Um right. and it, it is much more it is very real world grounded, but like there's sort of like a mental escape for the kids involved in this. And is it's like a kind of like a pursuit movie with like Mexican cartel people involved, and and Mexican government people involved. And I, if Guillermo del Toro is saying this is one of his favorite movies of all time, sounds like something I should go watch. Um, oh yeah, especially when it's not playing directly in the kind of stuff you think about. You know, when you think about Guillermo del Toro, so mm-hmm. definitely I'm gonna check that out, and I would recommend that to everyone else. Um, you got to check out uh, Yon Sang Ho. Um, the guy who reinvigorated the zombie genre in Korea um, with Train to Busan and its uh, its sequel Peninsula, um, it, it is his Train to Busan is one of the most, especially at a time when in the United States when we were kind of, you know, other than The Walking Dead, we we'd already kind of fizzled out on you know doing new zombie stuff, um, and Train to Busan is like a really fucking intense cool way to do a zombie a zombie thriller literally nice. people on a train trying to survive zombies on the outside and get to the front and try to survive zombies on the inside it's 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 one of those movies that just does not let up when it starts oh, um so yeah yun sang ho excellent excellent director train to be son excellent movie um and then i'm gonna i'm gonna cheat a little bit because uh, these people both speak english but it's because they're from england um and it's two people i think you're gonna see everywhere very soon one of them is an obvious one here simone ashley from bridgerton 
Um, uh, Indian actress, um, English obviously, but uh, background is Indian. Uh, she is going to be all over the place upcoming. Uh, real attractive actress, really, really talented. Um, and being on Bridgerton is one of those things that will definitely help boost your profile worldwide. So yeah. you're, you're, you will not be able to avoid her. Um, and then similarly, um, I'm going also going to give some props to Ella Belinska. Um, she is the lead in Netflix's Resident Evil, which is a not great show, particularly. And if you have no interest in Resident Evil, don't worry about it. You don't need to watch it. But if you do watch it, Ella Belinska is fucking great. Um, she has the chops to lead this TV show. And she has the chops to do the action stuff required um, from this TV show. Like, it is not out of place. In the same way, oddly enough, that Mila Jovovich does such a great job in those Resident Evil movies. And we've we've talked about it before. If someone could do what Mila Jovovich does, they would have found that person. But right. <clears throat> right. no one does exactly what she does. Ella Belinska gets pretty darn close to that. Um, what is really fucking funny about Ella, she's huge. She's like six feet tall. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently, when they were casting the other people to play around her, they didn't notice that she was real tall. Um, the <laughs> person who plays her husband, she's got to be at least three inches taller than. And, like, she just fucking dwarfs him. Um, like, when she's nice. in, like, a pair of combat boots, she looks so mm -hmm. much taller than him. Um, but but when but when they... When we, I mean, she's she's totally good with with the regular, you know, with just the regular scenes, but she's really great with the action stuff. I have a feeling that she will be popping up in more of those types of roles uh, going forward. And Chama, she is she is also she has the distinction of being in a movie that does not exist. Um, and do you remember when we talked about that? The movies that don't exist. <laughs> Very vaguely, yeah. So it's a it's a term it's a term that I, I first heard in the We Hate Movies podcast. It 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 can't be so a movie that doesn't exist is not a movie that's like a, an indie movie or something something real small that like you legitimately don't know about simply because it just mm. hasn't reached a wide audience. Yeah, movies that don't exist have to have stars, a budget, a director, and people still like it's it's like a total blank. Ella Belinska was one of the leads in the Charlie's Angel movie from 2019. Do you remember that one at yeah. all? I'm like, here I am like on Wikipedia and stuff like that. And like Kristen Stewart is in this movie. Kristen and... Stewart, Naomi Scott, Ella Belinska and Elizabeth Banks. And it's directed by Elizabeth Banks, but you couldn't tell me anything that happened in it. I don't think it exists. Yeah. I've like, I, to be honest with you, I can't like, <laughs> I'm struggling to remember. Cause I like, I remember the, Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, like from the 2000s. And stuff. The good like one? The, the late 90s. Yeah, the, the good one. Yeah. And then they had sequels to that. This, like, wow, this is 2019 and Kristen Stewart is in it? Mm -hmm. Like, this, this had to be a payout movie for her or something because this just seems like a movie she would not do. It, this is a movie that lost like 40 or $50 million on a budget that was about 40 or 50. So, like, it was a fucking, it just complete sinkhole tax write off. But. Um, but the but Ella Belinska does a really good job in Resident Evil, and I am actually looking forward to seeing what she does next. I think she's pretty great. Yeah, it says here that she identifies as Polish and British, Polish, and Caribbean. So yep. I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, we need more Poles out there. Her her father is a um, Kaz Belinska is like a like a Polish businessman. Her mother you probably have seen before if you've ever seen the Food Network. She's on uh, British Chef Lauren Pascal and model. Um, she's she has like a I don't know a hundred food shows. 
Interesting. Holy shit. Let me see here. So, so let me see. I got a picture. Of course, there's no Wikipedia picture here. I guarantee you I've seen this uh, person before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. yeah You've seen her before. Doubt. Yeah. I've seen her before. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Wow. Jesus Christ. Very interesting. Like, this is like a beautiful fucking family here. Like, everybody's uh, right. <laughs> Yeah, that's unfair. That's I, seriously, unfair. like it, it's yeah, it's totally totally unfair. She even has, she's one of the uh, Ella has like um, what what do you call it? Just a slight gap, harmony gap in between her teeth. Oh, yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah. it's one of those things that like if I had that, I'd look like just disgusting hillbilly. But you know, works on her. Let's hope to God that this becomes the next body trend. Like, you know how the, the thigh gap was the, the all the hype a couple of years ago? What's the, the split teeth, the harmony gap being yep. the new thing? <laughs> they, even, they, even make, they even make a joke about it in Resident Evil, about her getting her front teeth knocked out. And I'm mm-hmm. kind of like, of course. Someone that good looking would get her teeth knocked out and like she looks better afterwards. Yeah, exactly. That's just, yeah, that's how you know life's unfair right there. <laughs> you and I get our teeth knocked out. Even with the fake teeth that are look exactly like the teeth we have now, still look bad. Yeah. And go fucking figure with her. It's like, uh, yeah, you just got better looking somehow. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I think that's it. Anything else before we wrap up here? I do not have anything else, man. This is a great, uh, great discussion we had and everything. I got a, definitely some um, foreign film titles to uh, dive into now. So yeah, I am excited to go uh, check out a couple of these for sure. I, I, I would, I would one thousand percent suggest if you if you want just a weird night, not tonight, but at some point in time soon, dig into Raw. It is so fucking awesome. It is bizarre oh. and awesome. Oh, dude, when Jess and I go on vacation next, we're going to watch that together. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Perfect. All right. You want to lead us out of here? Yeah, you bet, dude. Everybody out there, thank you so much for turning into this episode of The Occasionalist. This is Adam Chemaluski and Matthew Pagel. We are wishing you the best, and we will see you next time. Thank you.